pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and you're listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie. And right now, Curtis is on the road, so he should be joining us a little bit later. So Curtis, C.S. Bennett, will be with us later on on the show. Mm. I'm losing my voice. Uh it's been a little hectic here, guys, but uh, we're getting our act together here. Um, but we've got a lot to do, a lot to talk about, and um, I hope you hang out with us and enjoy the show. Fantastic guests. Um, we've got a challenger to Maxine Waters. Uh, we've got um, a guy by the name of Joe Collins, a U.S. Navy veteran, and uh, He's running for Congress in Maxine's District, California 43. He'll be joining us at the start of the show. And then returning is Greg Roman, who is teeth in backwards. We're starting off early. Uh, He is the chair or the leader of the Middle East Forum. He'll be joining us. And then we have former congressman out of Georgia, Bob Barr. I haven't had him on in quite a few years, and I came across, you know, something he wrote. I said, you know, i got to get him back on. So I sent an email, and within a couple of hours later, uh, I had him booked on the show. So Bob Barr will be joining us. And then we have a new guest, Allie Boyd. She has a book out, Uncensored America, Thought-Provoking Poetry on Faith, Family, and Freedom. Um, It sounds a little boring, but I don't think she's in the least bit boring. I think you're going to really enjoy her. And then to end the show with our traditional Heritage Foundation guest, Zach Smith will be returning to join us. Uh, just bear with me for a minute. I've got to do a little bit of a correction here in the studio. <clears throat> for a minute. Oh. Nope. Okay. All right. That should solve that problem. I was getting a little noise coming in the back of me. And uh, right now, I'm still a little bit uh, disconnected because my new computer did come in. I finally started to hook it up, but it's like a blank slate. So I have to go in and reprogram all the stuff that I've lost on the old machine. Fortunately, I didn't lose the data. The data's all backed up. It's just when your machine crashes, the programs disappear. Anyway, like I said, we've got a lot, a lot to talk about. And those that listen to our show... Know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to to police officer Brandon M. Stalker of the Toledo Police Department out of Ohio. His end of watch was Monday, January 18th of this year. All right, and this starts off from the Officer Dan Memorial page that you can find at ODMP.org, and it reads, Police Officer Brandon Stalker was shot and killed at about 6.30 p.m. during a barricade involving an arson suspect. At approximately 2.20 a.m., 
the front doors of the historic Rosary Cathedral had been set on fire, and racial statements were spray-painted onto the walls. At approximately 3.30 a.m., officers spotted the suspect near his house at the 2300 block of Fulton Street and attempted to talk to him. The man drew a handgun and ran into a home where he barricaded himself inside. The department SWAT team responded to the scene and after negotiations failed, fired a chemical irritant into the house in an attempt to force him outside. The man emerged from the home holding two handguns and opened fire. Officer Stalker, who was on a perimeter position, was struck in the head and fatally wounded. Other officers returned fire and killed the suspect. Officer Stalker had served with the Toledo Police Department for two and a half years. He survived by his two children and fiance. And this is by Tony Gibbs and with WTYG. Officer Brandon M. Stalker made the ultimate sacrifice in the service of his community. He was shot and killed in the line of duty. His partner, Officer Mitch Vanderhorst, is honoring the service and sacrifice and legacy of his partner by sharing memories of their time together. Here is a transcript of his interview with 13 ABC during our segment, First Responder of the Week. Brandon was one of those rare people that is just one of the most genuine people you ever met. I mean, one of those guys you wanted to be around, and he wanted to be around everyone else. No one was going to be in a bad mood around Brandon, and he was going to make sure of it. He'd be the one to come in, instantly crack a joke, and he'd have a huge smile, and it was going to be an all-around good experience the rest of the time you're around him. I mean, he'd have your back through anything. He had my back through anything. He was just one of those guys who just, he loved his friends and family, and he was going to make sure that everyone knew it, and he was going to do anything he could for anybody else, and that was just him being him. That wasn't him trying to be better at the job. That wasn't him trying to be the super outgoing person. That's just the way Brandon was. I mean, he was my brother. I mean, blood couldn't have made us any closer. He was just one of those guys I talked to on a daily basis if I had something that was bothering me or if I had something that I had to get super excited about. I'd call Brandon or I'd text Brandon. You know, I see something funny on my phone. First thing is, man, I got to get this to Brandon. Like I said, he became an absolute brother. His family became family. You know, we all hung out. I'm not even going to go to the point and say, friend, he was one of the best friends that anybody could have. But at that point, your family after that. Like I said, Blood couldn't have made me closer at this point. With all the support and everything that's come from this, he's got to be more than proud. Like I said, this job meant everything to him. He loved doing it. He loved what he did, and I mean, it was everything to him. So I think with him being first responder of the week, 
It would be an absolute honor seeing the support that's been shown not only to him, but his family. He would be over the moon, just ecstatic. He lived for this. This is what he loved to do. So it means the absolute world to him. And this is a poem written by David L. Bell. And he posted it on Officer Brandon's Officer Down Memorial Page site. And it's titled, In honor of your sacrifice and for your family and friends, I salute you as a hero. Titled, The Badge. He starts his shift each day to respond to calls unknown. He drives a marked patrol car, and police officer he is known. He's paid by the citizens' taxes to make it safe on the streets, but he usually has a second job because a waitress has his salary beat. Now, he doesn't know a holiday because he works all year round, and when Thanksgiving and Christmas finally arrive, at his home, he cannot be found. He's cursed and assaulted often. The one whose blood runs blue, he seldom ever gets a thank. For some, he's just a fool. His friends are always other cops, whose people just don't understand. That underneath his badge and gun, he's just another man. He knows there might not be a tomorrow in this world of drugs and crime. And he gets so mad at the court system, because the crooks don't get any time. And each day when he leaves for work, he prays to God above, please bring me home after my shift so I can see the ones I love. But tonight, he stops his speeding car, and he's alone down this old highway. It's just a little traffic infraction. He does it every day. Well, he walks up to the driver's window. And his badge is shining bright. He asked the guy for a driver's license. When a shot rang through the night. Yes, the bullet hit its mark, striking the officer in the chest. But the department's budget doesn't buy each officer a bulletproof vest. So he lays on the ground bleeding. His blood wasn't blue. His blood was red. And briefly thought of his loved ones. Because in a moment, the officer was dead. In the news, they told the story of how this officer had died. And some who listened cared less, but those who loved him cried. Well, they buried him in uniform with a badge pinned on his chest. He even had his revolver. He died doing his best. Signed, David L. Bell. Today's show is dedicated to police officer Brandon and Stalker. It's also dedicated to each and every first responder out there, be they law enforcement, firefighters, emergency services. It's also dedicated to each and every member who serves in the military, be they or in our future, as they defend this mighty country. We dedicate to them this song by our friend Todd Allen Harrington. May God bless each and every one.
oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, God, oh, the heck of it. 
Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the hostess, or the least mostest, uh, Annie, the radio chicken V, along with my co-host, who has now finally joined me, better have a late slip, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Oh, Good yeah. afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I'm doing fine. It seems like I've been away forever. <laughs> God, <laughs> two weeks seem like forever. But I know I missed some great shows, so I got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I was telling the audience some of the great guests we got coming up. Uh, we got Joe Collins running for Congress out of California District 43, challenging crazy mad Maxine Waters. Good, good. <laughs> oh, man. We're going to have a lot of fun with him. And uh, we've got Greg Roman returning. He is with the um, Middle East Forum. Uh, followed by uh, former Congressman Bob Barr. Um, he was representing Georgia's 7th District. Uh, he now practices law over in Atlanta. He's got an organization called Liberty Guard. Uh, going to talk to him about that. And some of the crazy things going on uh, <laughs> that's going on in Atlanta, like the boycott and passing SCOTUS and things like that. And then we have a new yeah. guest, Allie Boyd. Uh, she's got a book out called Uncensored, Thought-Provoking Poetry on Faith, Family, and Freedom. And she's a huge proponent of the Second Amendment, which she addresses in her book. So we'll be talking to her about that. And then we're going to end with our Heritage Foundation guest of the week, Zach Smith. So we've got a lot to talk about and a lot to do, Curtis. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm looking oh. forward to it. I have to apologize that. When my back goes out really bad, it becomes difficult for me to breathe. So if you hear me a little coughing, I apologize. I don't have COVID, uh, but uh, I am having a little difficulty breathing because of the amount of pain I'm in at this moment. So it is what it is. Anyway. Well, that's uh, good. I don't have to wear a mask today. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, unfortunately, uh, I may be joking about COVID, but my sister and her husband have it. And it's really hit them really, really hard. Um, Every time they think that they're getting better, it just another wave just hits them. So, I mean, it's it's not that I'm an anti-vaxxer or an anti-masker. I'm totally cautious. However, situations occur and she contracted it. Um, She had been at a a funeral for her uh, brother-in-law. And one of the members of the funeral party uh, had COVID, didn't know it, and ended up spreading it around. So, you know, if you are going to go to any sort of a large gathering like that, folks, it would be wise to make sure you have yourself tested and you follow all the recommended protocols. Now, for me, I have to wear a face shield. would not protect me 100%, but that's the chance I have to take because I can't wear the mask nor can I get the vaccine because of underlying health issues. But if you can, I urge you to follow whatever is necessary to keep yourself safe. I mean, this happened in Florida, too, which has one of the lowest infection rates. But I guess he came from out of state. So, I mean, if if you know that you're going to be going to a large gathering, have yourself tested first to make sure you're not going to spread it. And then, you know, just... Act responsibly. That's all. That's all I ask. I don't want the mandates and stuff. I mean, it's got to go. People have to take responsibility for themselves. Ah, man. Anyway, Curtis. And that's true. Yeah. That is true. 
there is so much going tell you, on. As, down here ahead, in Florida, pretty much um, our governor, Ryan DeSantis, um, pretty much it's up to to each individual um, whether they you know want to wear the mask or not. And um, the thing about that is most people know their health better than any government official. You know, they know when they're coming down with something or whatever, just like the flu or whatever, or pneumonia. You go to the hospital, you get checked out. But, um, you know, I'm heading up to Philly where everything's a mandate, and it's almost like a prison camp up there. So, you know, I'm not really looking forward to that, but... I will look forward to coming back to, you know, Florida where things are a little more based on our, you know, constitutional rights. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Georgia's pretty open too at this point. <coughs> Excuse me. Like I said, it is hard for me to breathe a little bit. Oh, anyway. Um and I, I Oh, this is the latest, Curtis. My husband is finally coming out of the hospital today. I am after the show go to pick him up. Uh, the only problem is, is that he has to have an IV uh, given to him once a day, every day. And in order for us to do that, every day I have to go and take him to the hospital. Oh, this is going to be a lot of fun for six weeks. Wow. So, yeah, I'm exhausted as it is right now. We're running back and forth. But you got to do what you got to do. You gotta do. They're not able to do um, in-home care? Well, Have a nurse come out? The, they were trying to get the medication to me because I did this last time he was in this situation. But it was given to him three times a day using a hypodermic needle through a port they put in his arm. Well, they put the port in again, but this one is now going to be an IV bag that hangs. And because of that, um, I can't do it in the house. It has to be done at this point at the hospital. I mean, there are ways to do it at home, but my insurance is going to cover it. And (laughs) if I told you what the cost is, you'd you'd go, holy crap. And this is something that we have to pay every day. So the Mm. hospital said, well, your Medicare will cover it. <clears throat> so let's have the hospital do it, and that way we know he's in a sterile condition, and we know it's being done right. But um, as I said, there's, there's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, I was looking for some of the things that were, oh, I, I, I'm trying to find, because I have a whole mess of articles here. But here, this I found very interesting. <clears throat> Out of Virginia, a Virginia cop lost his job after the department chief found out that he donated, catch this, $25 to Kyle Rittenhouse Legal Fund. And this is out of Norfolk, Virginia. And the police officer is now out of the job uh, after he made a donation to the Kyle Rittenhouse Legal Defense Fund. And the New York Daily News, trying to out whoever donated money to Kyle Rittenhouse, came across the cop's name and outed him and notified the Norfolk City manager, Chip Filer. And Filer then requested his resignation to terminate him. Uh, Actually, it was the Guardian report the New York Daily News picked up. 
because they were looking for anything to hold against people to publicly shame them. And this is the problem. There's a bill that they're trying to push through Congress that if you make a donation to somewhere, you cannot do it anonymously. That if you do make a donation and you're a conservative or you're pro-life or you're a Christian, um, they can then go and notify your, see your name. And if you have a job, notify your boss, shame you, show up at your house, dox you. This is really scary. But this is what they did to this police officer. They doxed him. He lost his job over $25 donation. Now, catch this. He made the donation using the police department computer and sent a little note of encouragement to Kyle Rittenhouse saying that, most police officers, you know, stand behind you, feel that you, you did the right thing, you protected yourself, you defended yourself, exercising your Second Amendment, basically is what he said. I'm paraphrasing. They don't fire him over unauthorized, unauthorized use of department equipment. They fired him because he made the donation. So I, I, I don't know if this cop could get his – I think this cop may have a lawsuit. This could be our guest calling in. If it is, please press 1 on your keypad. Uh, otherwise, I would assume that you're just a listener. And it is. All right, let's bring the gentleman on. Let's welcome to our show, retired U.S. Navy veteran and congressional congress for con- Congress, Keithan <laughs> back with California District 43, running against crazy Maxi, Max War- uh, Waters. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you today? I'm doing really well. How about yourself? Um, Just fine. Right now, <laughs> right now, I have to apologize. I've got a bad back, and when it goes out, it affects my breathing. So if you hear me coughing a little bit, I'm not sick. It's just <laughs> I'm in pain, and it's not letting me breathe. But we're here. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Mm. Don't be. It's what life hands you. Anyway, uh, you are running against Maxine. You've tried this before. You're trying it again. And you've got some great videos up on your website, which is your name, Joe Collins for Congress.com. And I'm just looking in the chat room, and I misspelled Congress. I'm going to have to correct that on you. Anyway, I will correct that so people can go and help you with your campaign. But um, Thank you. I don't even know where to start with you with Crazy Maxine and all the stuff that she's doing. They just tried to uh, censure her for some of the crazy things she's saying, inciting riots. And this is a yeah. sitting member of Congress. Now, you would think they would know better than to do that. Didn't they just try to impeach Trump over the very same thing of inciting a riot? Well, I think they, they tried to impeach President Trump for something less than inciting a riot. It's like an assumption of an incitement um, just because the Democrats didn't like him. But this is what we've been going through in South L.A. for a very long time. I mean, Maxine Barr, this isn't new for the people who live there. And I think that she should have been censored. She should have been, she should have been censored. She actually should have been put out of Congress for, um, you know, making those type of statements because uh, it's dangerous and it's irresponsible. <laughs> to say the least, irresponsible and dangerous. You know, people have gotten hurt, and it, and what, what what's the media doing? Nothing. You hear crickets. Well, you hear people like uh, Don Lemon say, you know, she didn't mean, you know, she didn't mean it like that. And, you know, they try to cover up for these people all the time. 
we're at a time where it's time to stop doing that. Accountability is so important right now, but this is the equality that the Democratic Party lacks. And so with the introduction of new candidates and uh, candidates who are running again, who have a, a heavy platform and, and the ability to win, it's going to be extremely important for people to get behind us and support us. Oh, i got to tell you, my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, uh, who was a prolific author, is also a U.S. Navy veteran. He's from Desert Storm. So, Curtis, meet Joe. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Hey, Joe. <laughs> where where, yeah, where were you stationed at? So I was in the military for 13 and a half years. My first duty station was in Lemoore, California, and then I went to Oklahoma and I did a boots on the ground tour in Iraq. I came back, I recruited in Texas, and I spent the last two years at a helicopter squadron in San Diego. Oh, I served on the East Coast. Uh, I was on the USS Nimitz when it was stationed on the East Coast, and I finished out my career on the USS Saratoga. I was decommissioned back in the 90s, but I'm a veteran of the uh, first Gulf War, Desert Storm. So thanks for your service. Likewise, I appreciate it. All right. Anchors away. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to have a a couple of beers here in a second. Um, Joe, one of the main reasons why you're running against Maxine Ward is besides the fact that she's crazy. And I don't know if your agent sent you the little slogan that you may want to try throwing around. <laughs> crazy Maxie, gotta go. Um, but just where does she live? She doesn't live in the district she represents. As a matter of fact, she shouldn't even no, be in she, Congress based on that. Well, it's it's legal in California not to live in your district, but I think she should live in a district because she has this really nice mansion. It's, it's extremely big. It's extremely nice, a, a really nice neighborhood. And it's like a contradictory to what we're living in in a community. I mean, you know, gang violence, people have bars in their windows in most parts of, of the district, um, very dangerous areas in certain places as well. And I don't think it's fair that a representative in Congress not live in a district that they're supposed to represent because – they don't do any improvements to our communities as much as they're supposed to, as much things they're supposed to be fighting for. You know, these people are non-existent. And when it comes to what we want in the leader, what we need in the leader, we need a leader that can understand what we go through in our communities so they can be able to legislate better. Well, that's very true. Now, you're originally from South L.A., and your mom got you out of there real fast. Your, I read your bio, obviously. Um, and your mom's a very smart lady, obviously. Uh, tell us what finally drove her to leave South L.A. Um, our house was shot up in a drive-by. When I was younger, I started getting involved in gangs and, um, you know, started getting into a lot of fights at school and everything. And uh, the last straw was just when our house was shot up in a drive-by. Um, my mom was like, you know what, I had enough. We got to get out of here. So she, she took us clear across the country to Texas. And so I finished out high school in Texas and from there joined the U.S. Navy. But my mom's a school teacher. She's always been about uh, education and improving quality of life. And she did a very smart thing. And now you have returned to help other guys that are just in the same situation as, as you were in and try to make the district better. You know, um, we, we hear about Black Lives Matter, and yet we see a message coming out of that group that's Marxist 
it's not about improving lifestyle. It's about, I, from what I can see, especially with the riots that they caused, it's about keeping that victimhood on the individual and keep them down so they just keep on voting for the same old, same old. Basically, I think at this point it's just it's about money, you know, and they make all this money off the deaths of black people when they're killed by cops and when they're killed by other white people. But this organization doesn't give anything back to to the people who they claim to represent, kind of like Maxine Waters. And and so I thought when Black Lives Matter came around back in like 2013 or 2014, the concept was great. Let's create an organization to where we'll lobby to get bills passed or get bills updated to be able to improve the the black community. And and that hasn't happened. I think the only person thus far who has done the most or attempted to do the most for the the black community was President Trump. But, you know, because of the media, the majority of the black community rejected him because he's a mean guy. He says things that they don't like and, and stuff like this. But, you know, the organization in itself, Black Lives Matter, is absolutely trash. You know, because I, I look at this leader, this woman that's the face of Black Lives Matter, this Patrice Kahn Colors. Um, for 10 years, she represented Black Lives Matter. She earned a total of $120,000 over 10 years, yet she managed to buy four houses totaling $3.2 million. So it also begs to ask the question, where is the money going that people do donate to Black Lives Matter? Is it going to just that one individual so she can buy houses? Or is it really, truly going back into the streets to help the, the everyday guys? So that money went to Joe Biden's campaign. Some of that money went to her, but the majority of it went to Joe Biden's campaign. Like when you go donate to Black Lives Matter and uh, you pull the website up, the donation box takes you right to Act Blue. And we all know that Act Blue gives money to Democratic candidates who are running for specific offices. And when you look at uh, Joe Biden's financial reports from the Federal Elections Commission, it shows that the majority of his money came from that organization. You know, there's so much more to talk about with just that one group. And uh, my co-host knows, I keep on saying this, if Black Lives Matter, why aren't they out there in front of abortion clinics protesting there and saving future lives of black? Because I tell you, it doesn't fit their agenda. And all that I know and research on BLM is that they are a Marxist organization. So their belief system runs contrary to our constitutional system. Having said that, I want to ask Joe this one question. It's really good to see young black you know, conservatives running for office like yourself and Kim Classit out of Baltimore. But are you guys being um, helped by the Republican Party much as far as donations and support? Uh, no. Our, our, our support comes from people who want to see us win. The Republican Party, they have targeted seats um, in specific parts of the country that they, that they go after in the inner cities are not targeted seats. I don't think the Republican Party wants to be involved in anything that has to do with the with the inner cities. That's why you got candidates like myself, like Kim, like uh, Angela Stanley King, sad. people from the inner cities. Yeah. 
That's a little sad. bit. I mean, but we're talking about a Republican Party who has failed to be in the inner cities for a very long time. And that's how Joe Biden won. 477 counties, all of them are inner cities. And the people there, they literally just took that election. They took it. I don't understand that, why the Republican Party would would shy away from going into an inner city. Where the vast majority of families living there have basic conservative principles. They're worried about, you know, their family. They're worried about the kids being educated, getting a safe neighborhood. All things that every single everyday American worries about. But we shy away from going in there. And I don't understand that. Well, I have to admit, though, here in South Carolina, we've made inroads with the uh, Republican mm-hmm. Party we have here, where we have a deliberate outreach to the urban areas. And it, it's having a tremendous, tremendous effect. But California, I mean, come on, guys, you've got to wake up. You've lost the state. You can't keep on doing that. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> it, it, it just can't be yeah. done. It's got to start getting out there. And you're a perfect reason why they should be reaching out to you and saying, all right, what do you need? And I don't understand why they don't do that. They should be saying, how can we get Crazy Maxi out? <laughs> That's what they need right. to be saying. So I'm kind of glad that, you know, you see uh, Kevin McCarthy and Andy Big coming out against um, Maxine Waters, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she's doing, you know, her thing to try to, create some pathway to get it removed, you know, or we got to start supporting candidates from the inner cities. It's hostile, though. Sometimes it's really hostile in the inner cities, and you just got to be consistent with the approach to the inner cities and, and approach on a level where you guys can understand each other, where, where you're coming from, instead of, all right, I'm going to shove my ideology down your throat, and you're going to accept it approach. Well, you know, I, I, I do know the inner city because I was a cop in Brooklyn, New York. On, on patrol, on foot many times. And uh, it, it, one of the things I did was I had hooked up with the uh, Marine recruiters. So when I ran into like, some kids, you know, just messing around, you know, I started talking to them. And I'd shoot them towards one of the Marine recruiters. I said, you want to get out of the inner city? Here's a way out. <laughs> oh, yeah. I became a, almost a recruiting tool for the Marine Corps. But, you know, you have to know how to talk to them and how to listen also. You see the situation. On one corner, you've got a prosecutor. another corner, you've got a drug dealer. And on the other corner, you've got a gang member watching both of them. And, you know, little old me, tiny <laughs> little old me is in between the three of them. So, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from on that one, honestly. But, you know, there's there's a lot more to talk about with your campaign. And one of the problems California has being a state that borders on the southern border, you got a problem with this open border policy of President Joe Biden. And the amnesty bill that he's pushing in the House, uh, it, it really does affect, believe it or not, the inner city, because where are these people going to migrate to? Where the housing is the cheapest, and where they can blend in the fastest, right? Yes, that's that's true. California has always had a problem. It's a sanctuary state, so immigration has been an extreme problem for California for a very long time. And I think that what Joe Biden is doing with trying to create amnesty or, or giving a pass to illegal immigrants is incentivizing people breaking our laws that our Congress created while still punishing 
Americans for breaking those same laws. And so I think he's a, he, him and his whole entire administration is a huge contradictory to what it is that we're supposed to stand for when it comes to law and order. Yeah, well, it's, it's even funnier. Uh, these these people in the Biden administration think, oh, we're, we're following the law. We're, we're... But what they're doing is actually helping people to break the law. Just saying the border's wide open, just come on a course. Now we've got these unaccompanied kids coming, of course, and being dumped. I mean, literally being dumped. And we're seeing the Border Patrol having to handle situations that they're not trained for. They're not social workers. So instead, they're taking these kids, they're busting them inside the United States and trying to get them housed, these unaccompanied minors. Instead of having them reunited with family, sending them back over the border to be back with their parents, they're turning around and they're going to foster parents and asking them to take in these illegal children. What they're doing is they're helping and fostering human smuggling, human smuggling of innocent minors. This is not making any sense to me, Joe. Is it making any sense to you? No, it's not. And sex trafficking has been a huge issue um, from that southern border for a long time, and it's been an unaddressed issue. And I think that's something that we have to start getting getting back on top of. we got to get ahead of the game on this thing because we can't have these children coming across the border. And there's a lot of liberals who says, well, they just come in with their parents. Well, there's no way to prove that. And also they said, well, just give them some documentation. They're going to come back for a court date. Well, if they are already prone to breaking our laws, what makes you think they're going to come back for a court date in order to follow the law? You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge problem that we're having right now. And this is one that I hope, I, I really, really hope um, Kamala Harris comes out of hiding and starts to work on because last time I checked, she was a point person for the border crisis, but she's been absolutely silent. She spoke about the job. She spoke about international affairs. Um, she just spoke about um, climate change a couple of days ago, but the, the biggest issue we've been facing right now at that border is something she's been uh, dismissive about. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she's going to visit the border yet, has she? No, she hasn't been there at all. <laughs> Joe, when it comes to your platform, which issue do you believe will attract the attention of most of the people in the minority community or you hope to to get to attract them? Um, so my my platform is based around what I call a five point plan and that's bringing jobs back and proving the relationship between law enforcement and the community, uh, improving our education, um, financial literacy. And, uh, and I think, uh, I think one of the biggest things that I want to start pushing right now, especially for the, the inner city, my district is financial literacy. Everybody talks about building generational wealth and, and this, that, and the third, but at the end of the day, if you don't have that financial literacy, then it's impossible for you to build anything. Uh, even if you do have a job, even if you are wealthy. And so I really want to push, the financial literacy aspect. I think that is what a lot of people, especially young people my age, want to do because, you know, we don't have anything that was passed down uh, to us from uh, the previous generation. You know, it's it's funny because I'm of the generation where when we left high school, you were ready for society outside, not just about reading and writing, but you understood how to prepare your taxes, how to balance your checkbook, you know, things like that. 
but instead, they're not teaching kids that. Instead, they're teaching them critical race theory. They're teaching them how to be gender fluid. How is that going to prepare them for the outside world when they'll be just nothing but disappointment after disappointment and failure after failure? We're no longer educating our kids to be prepared for society. Joe, what what do you true. do to to turn this around? I think we have to get back on board with how education used to be. I mean, if we're going to teach critical race theory, quote unquote, I think that theory needs to be taught from the Library of Congress so people can know the real history of what's been going on in the United States and not someone else's transformative idea about what they think the United States is or should be. Um, When it comes to education in general, I think putting trades back into schools would significantly help our, uh, our, our generation of students. I think that also getting back to basic financial principles, basic life skills, like you said, that's going to help people be successful as soon as they get out of high school. I know in our district, uh, we have we have a very low graduation rate from high school, and we have an even lower graduation rate from college. I think our college graduation rate is uh, somewhere around 22%, and high school graduation rate is at 80%. So you got to think, you know, the people who are graduating from high school, what are they doing? And if they go to college, only 20% of those kids are graduating college what is everybody else doing and what type of skills are we setting our young adults up with so they can be successful? And the answer is we're letting them down. Yeah, big time, big time. You know, uh, I used to tell the story that I was standing in a grocery line and a new cashier was being trained. And you know how you put that little store divider between your groceries and the person in front of you? Well, mm-hmm. she's scanning the all the groceries and persons there bagging him, and she grabs the divider and tries scanning it. And she then calls for a price check on the divider. That is how wow. poorly we are training our, our our students today if they don't even understand, you know, that this is not a grocery product. <laughs> this is just to divide my groceries from the customer in front of me and behind me. That that's a, that's a real that story. Through, that's a true story. That is a true story. Uh, but that's what we're, pre- we're preparing. And I had uh, one of our ministers came to visit our house one day because my husband was homebound at the time. And he's, he was telling us he has a hard time trying to get these kids ready for a job interview because they don't even have the interpersonal skills to shake someone's hand, to look them in the face, and talk directly to them. They know how to communicate on their device by texting, but the one-on-one personal skills are missing. Now, what scares me the most, Joe, is with these forced lockdowns we are having right now, people are even losing what little skills they have because now you're hiding behind a mask, you're locked in your home, and you're no longer interact- doing the one-on-one interaction with people. Joe, what would you say if you got to Congress and say, how would we get ourselves out of this and, and get our kids prepared to just be normal? I think it all comes back down to accountability. I mean, we have to continue to hold these elected officials accountable, and those who refuse to, to be held accountable are those who trespass against people's um, constitutionally protected rights. We have to be able to, to have a way to force those guys out of office. 
Um, I think that's the way that, that we can start. Uh, we also have to start getting more educated people into into Congress. I mean, like people who know what they're talking about. I'm not talking about like someone like AOC who don't even know what the three branches of government is. Um, we need people <laughs> to get into office who have actually served this country, uh, people who actually have something to lose, not a bunch of bureaucrats or, or attorneys who think they know about the United States. You know, here in South Carolina, they, they passed a law into uh, the education system that on the high school and also on the college level, we must teach the founding principles and documents. And that's missing from our school systems nationwide. And I don't believe in a federal department of education. Would you then, you know, be for not only just for school choice, but getting rid of the department, the federal department of education and make it now local so that the parent, the community has more control about what's being taught. Yeah, I am pro school choice. Like I'm extremely pro school choice, uh, especially knowing that we have a lot of schools that are that are failing um, right now. And I'm not talking about students. I'm talking about the actual schools. The actual schools are failing. The education, the curriculum is is garbage. Uh, when it comes to creating a uh, an atmosphere to where the schools are being controlled on the local level, uh, it's like a, it's like a hit or miss. And the reason why I say that is because you want the parents to be involved in education, but because the cost of living is so high and the jobs aren't paying um, well, or the jobs are paying well, but the cost of living keeps going up, it, it pulls the parents out of the schools. And so you know, we leave it up to uh, the parents and the parents are, are absent from the schools, and then you leave it up to the local officials, and then you have local officials in California that are pushing – you know, this this choose your own gender thing and that's that's not healthy. So I mean it's just like a it's like a hit or miss, uh, when it comes to you know, how I feel the education system should be ran. I think we need competence in the education system first. Well that's very true. And here's something that is uh legislation passing through right now that's being talked about in South Carolina, that the state would audit the school districts and if the school district is failing a certain grade, the state would then take over temporarily the school board. And then once the they would then appoint individuals in those positions, they would actually fire the school board, appoint state representatives into the school board to make it come back up to the standards. And once it's three years in that standard, then they would turn it back over to local elections so the local people can then, you know, vote in competent members. I, that's that's a format I, I would love to see the states choose to do and get it out of the federal government because one size does not fit all. You know that. Yeah, this is true. That actually is a good plan. That's a, that's a, that's a really good plan. I think that's something that I, I would be willing to look into. Yeah, absolutely. When I read the bill that uh, they sent me, because I get, I get all the emails and, and uh stuff from some of my representatives to let me know what's the latest because I still run a tea party. Believe it or not, tea party is still alive. Uh, so, yeah, I do have to stay on top of what's going on. Now, um, there have been some attacks uh, on politicians simply because they're conservative, because they're vocal. And recently we had the one on Matt Gates, And um, we only come to find out that it was a, 
a hit job by CNN, a propaganda job. Should you feel that mainstream media should be held responsible for where they go after the elected officials simply because they're conservative or they just don't fit the mold that the media wants them to be? Uh, I think that, you know, the mainstream media is just doing what they get paid to do. And that, and that means, you know, if they can push a story where the ratings are extremely high, then then absolutely go for it. But I think that it has to be equal on both sides. The same way you attack conservatives, you should attack liberals um, in that same manner. But unfortunately, you know, it, it doesn't happen. When it comes to the situation with, with Matt Gates, I don't know anything about it because I wasn't there, so I don't even draw an opinion or a conclusion um, on that situation just because I don't I didn't follow the story. I don't have any of the details, and I really just wasn't there to make that type of determination. But I, you know, pray for him, and, and I pray that he makes it through uh, this situation and he comes out smarter. I, I hope so, too, because uh, from what I've been seeing with reports that Newsmax has been having, uh, James O'Keefe was able to tape a CNN individual that said it was a propaganda job. Their intent was to get rid of Matt Gates. Um, I, at that point, I think the mainstream media should be held criminally liable for attempting to destroy an individual simply because they don't like him. Yeah, they yeah. they do yeah. a lot of character assassination. You know, I'm not surprised by it. I mean, but we do it amongst ourselves also. You know, uh, I get attacked on a regular basis by conservatives and liberals just because I'm a free thinker and I don't want to go with mainstream ideologies because it doesn't fit what I believe. Um, the only difference is the media, mainstream media has a, a bigger platform. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Uh, people can find your website, which is uh, Joe Collins for Congress.com. There's so much more I wanted to talk to you about, like military readiness, uh, how the Biden administration is just destroying that. Uh, we need a strong military uh, his idea to pull the troops out of Afghanistan on 9-11 as if that isn't a significant uh, date and an open invitation for a, an event on that day, which I pray does not happen. Um, there's so much more we could talk about, so I'd like to have you come back on if you would love to. Uh, and uh, I apologize for being a little under the weather today. Okay, not a problem. Just you know, shoot me an email and we'll get it back on the schedule and then we'll be back. All right, and people can help you with your campaign by going to your website, joecollinsforcongress.com. Even though if they don't live in the state, they can still make a donation and get their friends that do live in the L.A. area to vote for you. Yes, absolutely. Um, That is extremely important. The support that we get from across the United States has has been one of my passions, uh, one of the fuels that keep my passion going. And so I really do appreciate all the support that we get, the donations. I love when people come out to our events and everything, too. It's such a blessing. Oh, I hope I hope you do win because, you know, Joe, Crazy Max has got to go. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. You guys have a great afternoon. All right. Take care. Good luck. All right. You all right. Take care. Good luck. All right. Uh, Joe Collins, check him out. <clears throat> Joe Collins for Congress dot com. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm <clears throat> starting to lose my voice here now. Oh, jeez. Uh and you know, this this is really what gets me when I mentioned about the Forster families here, Curtis. Yeah. There is um 
this is actually happening that, you know, uh, in California, people are getting uh, calls from uh, foster care. Uh, the state's community care licensing division has asked foster parents if they can take anywhere from one to catch this number, anywhere from one to 26 of these illegal alien children. How is a foster family going to take in 26 kids? How are they going to do that? Crazy. I mean, in most states, you you know, for people who who do um, in-home babysitting, you're not allowed to have more than eight. Mm. No. They started receiving a voice message and then follow-up emails starting in mid-March with the request. And this is a family that was reported in the Epic Times, Charlotte and Travis Call. They already are, you know, foster parents, but they're being asked to take in additional kids. Now, this is our tax dollar helping to facilitate this human trafficking. Now, you got to also understand, a lot of these kids are coming across with different diseases, things like leprosy, tuberculosis, um, COVID. And while they may be tested, even if they're positive, they're being sent here into the rest of the United States to spread these things. We know there's outbreaks now of leprosy in the L.A. area. You know, this is, this is a human situation that is beyond the pale. And, and I think no that's one why, is talking about it. I think that's why 10 states have already joined together and filed a, a lawsuit against the Biden administration. Um, for his, um, you know, his his views and and his policies on the border, you know, it's it's causing these guys great harm, and it's illegal. You know, it, it's going against established law, and you know, I think every one of them should be held accountable because they take an oath to uphold the law, and these folks are outright, you know, um, just um, subverting the law. That that cannot mm-hmm. continue, and we remain a lawful nation, a nation of laws. That is true, but it's being ignored. And instead, they're pandering to the illegals and they're leaving the rest of our nation <clears throat> vulnerable. You know, they have these people packed in these small units, one on top of the other, uh, and you saw some of the pictures that the Republican congressmen had taken when they visited the border, despite the fact uh, Homeland Security asked them not to, but they were able to take these films, and that's how we're finding out what's going on. So now to hide what is being done, they're just putting these kids and people on these buses and just sending them out to the rest of the United States, just dumping them. <clears throat> I mean, how is this helping the illegal alien. How is this helping the immigration system? How is this helping everyday Americans? How is it helping to protect these United States? It's not. It's anything and everything doing but to destroy us. Yep. Um, I believe their intent is to do exactly that, you know, in order to break down our existing um, system, uh, political system. It, it just doesn't make sense, but that's why I believe it's, it's you know, very important to 
to challenge these guys legally in court and hopefully our <clears throat> our people in positions of, you know, judgeships and stuff, you know, have have some balls, you know, and stand up for the Constitution and the principles this country was founded on. We didn't see that in the 2020 election. They all were AWOL. They are. They are all AWOL. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, you know, we we see very, very little being spoken about on this mainstream media. But we're, we're nasty. We're racist. We're, we're nationalists. No. What you're doing is cruel and unusual punishment to these individuals that are coming across the border. Now we see a rise of MS-13. We see a rise in drug tra- trafficking. We see a rise in sex trafficking. How are you helping people by helping perpetrate the crimes? You should be working to stop these crimes. You should be turning around and saying, you come across with drugs, we're kicking you back out. You come across, you're a member of MS-13 or any other gang, we're kicking you back out. If you're attempting to smuggle someone across for the purpose of sex trafficking, we're kicking you back out. We're not protecting people. And there was a heartbreaking story that I heard um, on Newsmax, uh, I think it was yesterday, one Department of Homeland Security agent, there was this little girl, they were inter- interviewing her, a tiny little toddler, and she couldn't speak. So they're trying to ask her questions, trying to get her to speak, and she she wouldn't speak. Finally, one of the other kids said, she can't speak anymore. And they said, why? And they, they told her, the, the agent, that this little girl was gang raped so brutally that she screamed so hard and so loud that she lost permanently her voice. Can you imagine that happening to an innocent child? I, it's, it's happening. And a lot of other things. You know, these kids are being brought across the um, the border and they're being sexually abused and whatnot. I mean, as young as five years old out here. And, um, you know, we have to lay the blame at the, the feet of the Biden administration because surely if it was Trump, they'd be all over this in the news. Oh, yeah. Anyone. Anyone but Trump. And, and they're silent. And the story about this little girl and how many other times has this happened to other children, to women carrying children that are being assaulted? You know, this open border policy is perpetrating the crimes. And it means they don't see the tragedy, the human tragedy in this. And they really, truly are cruel and evil people. There's no other way to describe them but as being cruel and evil. I agree. And I hope, like I said, I hope that we can re- recoup the um, Senate and control of the House um, in the midterm election November um, next year, because at least we have a chance to um, put breaks on their agenda, somewhat like what we did um, Obama's first two years. I mean, they pretty much had had reign of everything. They could have got pretty much anything they wanted passed. Um, they fo- they decided to focus on um, health care at that time. So I think now 
they realize their mistakes, and I think they're just going for everything they can get, you know, going for the gusto, you know. And um, we just have to see how it plays out. You know, when I look at what this administration does, it's like, don't look at the man behind the curtain. (laughs) Well, I think we're about ready to start pulling that curtain down and say, look, who is behind the curtain? Who's really, really pulling the strings? Because you know it's not Crazy Uncle Joe. You know it's not. You know, this has got to be Jerry Nadler, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, Barack Obama. You know Barack Obama's got to be involved. It's like his third presidency. And now all the stuff that he he didn't want to stir up a hornet's nest, let's do it while Joe Biden's there and Biden gets blamed. Well, Biden, <laughs> yeah, we're going to blame him because he's a doddering old fool. <laughs> and... We're waiting for our next guest to call in. We're waiting for Greg Norman. I just sent a text to his agent to to find out if he's awake. Yeah. <laughs> but you know. <clears throat> anyway, I am losing my voice. Uh, anyway. Yeah, um, I had I had that problem a couple of months ago. I don't know. It's just like laryngitis or something. You know, it just your voice is not fully there, and I think it came across on the show a couple of times. But um <clears throat> he was just gonna have to drink some tea and lemon and and honey. That that kind of combination when you get off the air. Maybe your voice will come mm-hmm. back. <clears throat> yeah, hopefully. Um this is this is like you really can't make this stuff up. And this is an article uh that came out of the uh, Patriot Newsfeed. And <laughs> Uh, this is just too funny. Uh, Jen Psaki, who's the White House uh, uh, spokesman, um, they really got her and the White House press office really, really good. There was this person who was a gamer, online gamer, and she created this really elaborate hoax pretending to be a member of the press. And through her fake credentials that she created and postings, she convinced the White House press and Jen Psaki that she actually was legitimate press. So she got to be able to get all the inside information directly from the press office. And they had no idea that this was a complete hoax. So she would post you know, questions for them to answer, and they thought they were actually talking to a legitimate news outlet, to a legitimate credentialed press individual, but it's this female um, who 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 called herself Casey Montague, but she doesn't exist. There's no actual real person, and she got mm. into she created a fictional outlet called White House News, and she shortened its its emails to WHN. <laughs> mm. And she was able to pose as an actual you know legitimate press. And get access, gain full, full press access to the White House, Jen Psaki, the White House press corps. <laughs> um, and, well, and she had a, did she get anything interesting? Did she get anything that was interesting? Uh, well, her, her White House, let's see, the account got 
attention from insiders who quickly came to re- rely on their speed and efficiency at White House schedules had a following of more than 1,300, including several White House correspondents, some working at Politico, and the new White House pool report account amassed more than 600 in a few weeks' time, including some who work in the administration, like Michael LaRosa, press secretary for Jill Biden, and Simone Sanders, the senior advisor and chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris. So not only was it the White House press course she got into, she got directly into the Biden, <laughs> Kamala Harris. Hmm. Oh. It's amazing. <laughs> Well, what I'm looking forward to is um, January of next year, maybe February, because that's when people will start announcing their run for, you know, 2024. I'm really curious if um, Trump is going to jump back in. If he doesn't, I believe Ryan DeSantis will from Florida. Oh, oh, I I, I wanted to ask... uh, Joe, about this. Joe. This, yeah, this this announcement came this morning because there were rumors going around that a rather prominent Republican in California is going to run for the governor. And every time you click on the button to find out who this prominent Republican is, I ended up having to reach for the barf bag. This prominent, quote, conservative, unquote, Republican is none other than Bruce Caitlin Jenner. Oh God! Now, you want to talk about a, a circus? A circus? Oh man! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are they for real? They're for real. Uh, now, right. is it going to be him or his alter ego? <laughs> no, I don't know. But um, all right. Our guest is not going to be able to be with us. Uh, Unfortunately, there was a, he's okay, but there was an accident, as long as he's all right. So, yeah, so I'm sorry, our our guest, Greg Greg Roman, the teeth and backwards, Greg Roman, will not be with us today. All right, so I'm just letting you know that we're sending prayers. All right. Wow. So... It is a dangerous world out there. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, these things happen. These things happen. So that's all right. So, Uh, go ahead. Who's who's running um, for governor in South Carolina next time up? Will it be another Republican? Um, No one has actually thrown their hat in the ring yet, and I think it's a little bit too soon. So uh, not at this point, we don't want, I don't think anyone's actually thrown a name in yet. I oh, could, so y'all must have had one recently. In the last two years, y'all must have had one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got a couple more years in before that the seat comes contested. So I think it's a little too early. Matter of fact, next month we have our state convention uh, that's when you'll probably start hearing some names being thrown around. So, and if if anyone were to make any sort of a test of the waters, it would be there. But it's going to be a okay. virtual event. So whether or not, I don't oh, know how man. much information. Not another virtual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, 
here's something that everyone should be talking about, and we really have to get uh, certain individuals back on the show because it, this this is really really a story that is not hitting the news at all. And I think hopefully the Epic Times will pick up on this because this was on the flag and cross. And uh, this came out by Andrew West last week. And there is a lab out in California figures that anything weird is going to happen. It's going to come out of California or Canada. Hi, Gary. See you in the in the chat room. Um, I'm, the only way I can do this, i got to read it. And from the flag, of course, it reads, it may seem like the plot from some sci-fi thriller, but we assure you it's very, very real. Science, like most other fields of study, has long required its practitioners to push the envelope. That is the nature of the beast when it comes to innovation, but we must also temper that need for progress with some logic and rationale. Much like Jeff Goldblum's character laments in the film Jurassic Park, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. That is why the latest news out of California is jarring. Now, to say this is jarring, this is something that should have been an open discussion long before, and we should have had law in place to prevent something like this from happening. It continues, um, for the first time, scientists have created embryos that are a mix of human and monkey cells. Now, when you use the word embryos, you are creating a living being. That's not testing to see, you know, how cells react or if you can reproduce, say, a human ear, which they do in the back of a mouse, um, but they actually created an embryo. That's a living creature. That's playing God. Yep, man has always wanted to emulate God and be creators, as he was. But um, I don't know how far we will allow them to go as a society because of moral issues. It's well, just like cloning, this, you know. This is a, a, a huge moral issue. It further goes on, the embryos, not cells, set of cells, the embryos were described in the journal Cell, were created in part to try to find new ways to produce organs for people who need transplants said the international team of scientists who collaborated in the work. How many of them came from China, I asked. But the research raises a variety of concerns. Quote, my first question is, why? Unquote, said Kirsten Matthews, a fellow for science and technology at Rice University's Baker Institute. I think the public is going to be concerned, and I am as well, that we are just kind of pushing forward with science without a proper conversation about what we should or should not do. Scientists are defending the controversial decision, however, and doing so sternly. This is one of the major problems in medicine, organ translation, said Juan Carlos Belamonte, a professor in the Gene Expression Laboratory at the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences, 
in La Jolla, California, and a co-author of the cell study. The demand for that is much higher than the supply. I don't see this type of research being ethically problematic, said Insu Hayan, a bio, bioethicist at Case Western Reserve University and Harvard University. It's aimed at lofty humanitarian goals. And then, with the tacit acknowledgement of the creepy thoughts running through American minds, our goal is not to generate any new organism, any monster, Belmonte said, and we are not doing anything like that. We're trying to understand how cells from different organisms communicate with each other. No, you, you created a human embryo. You created a creature. You want to see how cells communicate between different creatures? Why? That's the question. I well, find you want to grow organ. a ear on the back of a mouse to see whether or not you can transplant it onto a yeah. person missing the ear. Uh, I can organ understand har- that. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've talked about the fulongong and the organ harvesting in China. Gee, how many of these Chinese scientists, we know there have to be thousands of them infiltrated in our laboratories, in our different industries, in our government. We know that. They're here to steal technology or help us develop it so they can steal it and bring it back home. But if they run out of fulongong to harvest organs from, where are they going to go next? Oh, won't we create our own creatures that we can... Well, they're not fully human. So, you know, they don't have human rights. They don't have civil rights and liberties. They're not creatures made by God. We made them. So we control them. We own them. This is a very, very, very scary thought. I think um, if they make enough of them, those guys are going to join forces and demand rights. We're making our own planet of the apes. That's what we're doing. That or zombies. That seemed to be the thing today, zombie this, zombie that. Oh, sure. You You make the creature... Uh, mentally incapable of defending itself, protecting itself. You make it incapable of understanding what is being done to it. Well, well fine, no problem. We need a heart here, uh, so take X, Y, Z. You need a liver? Well, that creature over there in cage number 15. Let's go get it out of that one. You know, this is a very, very dangerous area in which these scientists are going. And uh, I think the public should be warned about this. I mean, <clears throat> you don't want the COVID vaccine made out of uh, fetal, uh, fetal tel- cell tissues, right? Out of aborted babies. I, it's against the law to to trade in human body parts. It's against the law. All right? it's, it's not, unless you, not unless you're a corporation. Species. Not unless you're a corporation, you know, seem like they have special status. Or Planned Parenthood. But, you know, now that we we can't call it human because it's not fully human. So it doesn't fall under our Constitution. So it's got to be legal to do that, right? 
From what I understand, there's a when it comes like to DNA, um, there's a lot of corporations that are are buying what amounts to like a license or something for certain DNA traits or whatever. And you have to wonder why that is, you know. But uh, you know, I, I can think of some pretty, you know, scary scenarios, like some high sci-fi movie or something but you know i think they want to dabble um with these dna cells so they can create like you say create whatever you know if they just want to create um eyes you know eyeballs that's 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 what they'll do and they'll manufacture those eyeballs and sell them you know well not manufacture but cultivate them and if you know somebody needs a, a arm or something well hey we specialize in arms, you know, with your blood type, you know, that kind of thing. It's really weird and scary. Oh, man. Gary's put, posting up over on the chat room over on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, there's going to be a COVID accord. World leaders call for global pandemic treaty. Hey, this is I got a cat scratching something on me. Get out of there. Get out of there. Go. <laughs> go. 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 Sorry about that, folks. This is live radio. <clears throat> so, actually, he put up a link uh, to something called Internet Marketing Los Angeles. It's a video calling for a global pandemic treaty. Whoa. And you know, Crazy Uncle Joe signed on to that one. He was trying to get us back into the Pacific Path. He's trying to get us back into uh, the Iran deal. My head is starting to spin. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what do you what do you think of this 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 Johnson Johnson thing with the um, vaccination? Um, I mean, how many people are going to trust these guys now that I hear there's talk about them resuming, you know, their version of the COVID, you know, vaccine? I would, you know. Uh, I only heard bits and pieces, but somehow or other the Chinese, again, were involved in this, and the lab had been um, compromised. And the Chinese are also trying to manufacture the vaccines, too, and they want to sell them to us. The same way they sold us the PPP, the PPEs, the personal protection equipment, that they originally sold to us, then they went and bought back, and then resold to us. Uh, remember, uh, I spoke a couple of weeks back. It was in Virginia where they had a shortage of PPE. And it turns out the government had a whole warehouse stockpiled of all this personal equipment, you know, gowns, masks, gloves, sanitizer, everything. And when the media went in and photographed all these boxes stockpiled in the warehouse, Every last box that was on that footage said, made in China. <laughs> made in China. I'm not surprised. Now, if, if you don't think this COVID virus was not Chinese manufactured, I got a bridge in Brooklyn. I'm very happy to sell you. <clears throat> now, you mentioned DNA also earlier. And it seems the Chinese, they have a whole, what am I going to call them, a regiment? a whole group of people 
their job is to simply hack into our computers, not just the United States, but worldwide, and to steal information. And one of the things that they're stealing and they're going after big time is our DNA records. They're going into these labs, like one, two, three, um, and some of these other big names that you do your DNA and you do your heritage testing to see where you ancestry. That's the one. They're hacking into their computers and stealing the DNA information. So they want to know if they're going to come after us, what is our weakness like the COVID? Anyway, we do have our next guest in on the line. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I get myself uh, organized here, and I do believe we have former Congressman Bob Barr with us today. Good afternoon, Congressman. How are you today? Indeed, you do have him with you. I am doing fine. I'm not in my hometown of Atlanta. I'm down in Panama City Beach today. Ah, and my co-host is over. He lives in Interlochen. So, yeah, Interlochen, Florida. Florida. Yeah. I did, did he say Panama? Did he say Panama? Panama yeah, we're just down now. We're, we're visiting with some friends in Panama City uh, Beach this weekend. Wow. I was there, what, two years ago for a Trump rally. Well, it's it's kind of quiet here right now. You know, the, the weather is nice. It's not, I wouldn't say it's hot out, but, uh, yeah, it's just nice to get away for a couple of days and relax with friends. That is and meanwhile, true. my... Curtis, you're calling from your cousin's house over in Hinesville? Hinesville, Georgia. Yeah, so I think you guys flipped. I'm broadcasting from Hinesville, Georgia. <laughs> right down the street from, um, what is it, um, Stewart, Fort Stewart? Yeah, Fort Stewart. Fort, Fort yeah. Stewart over near Savannah. Yeah. yeah. Now, right. We have a former Congressman Bob Barr on the show, and welcome back. I, I apologize for not having you on for quite a while, but, man, things get crazy around here. And you represented Georgia District 7 from uh, 95 to 03, and you, you made yourself a powerful message as a conservative in Congress. Matter of fact, uh, you're dour continent, <laughs> to put it politely. But, well, I, yeah. I, and, and I and I am to this day, I still run into people who believe that I never smile and have no sense of humor, which my wife uh, would tell you is absolutely not true. I have a sense of humor. It may be very dry, but it is there. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had a laugh because um, I was reading something that you had written. And you had me cracking up because I could, I could hear your dry sense of humor in it. And I think, oh, here it is. All right, I got it. It was an article you wrote called Humpty Dumpty Democrats are Destroying the English Language on Purpose. And I have so many highlights on this one that underlines because you had me cracking up. But the sad part is it's so true. We have them reformatting our entire language. So you thought it was funny when Bill Clinton said, well, please define, tell me what is, is. We thought that was funny. It all depends so, on what the have, meaning of is, is. Yep, yeah. I remember it well. But what they have done to our language it, it is, it is turned everything upside down. So now you have 
meanings for I'm trying to think of the proper phrase I was thinking because I had it in my head last night and it just went out the door um, when you you had an idea a premise by changing the meaning of any of one of the words you actually turn everything upside down to make it mean the exact opposite they do that and what they do the left that is uh, they manipulate language not just for fun, but for a particular political purpose. Because if you, if you unanchor words from meaning, then it is easier to control people. And that's really what all this boils down to is controlling people. And if you say, well, we're going in the most recent, one of the most recent examples, uh, we're going to pay for infrastructure. Yeah, well, people say, well, you know, sure, that's good. The bridges are falling down and the roads are in disrepair. So that makes sense. Well, they then talk about infrastructure to mean everything under the sun that they want to pay for. And people, a lot of people don't realize what's happening with the money that they're proposing to spend. It's not going for, you know, just bridges and roads and train tracks. It's going to, uh, to buttress social programs and education programs that the left wants. So it's far easier to do what they want to do and to control people and spend their money if the words that they use no longer have any definitive meaning. And see, right there, right there, when you say spend, they would say invest. Invest, of course. That's a perfect example. Well said. Yeah. You start off the article. This is when I said, oh, this is definitely Bob Barr writing this himself. Um, You start off with, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And then you go on to uh, quote Ayn Rand, uh, the fountainhead, uh, Ellsworth Tuhi, the journalist, the little weasel, uh, about his corrupting the meaning of words. So as you mentioned in the infrastructure, they want to do paid leave. Tell me how that, how that affects bridges and roads. Um, Child care, okay. And then caregiving constituted infrastructure projects. It has nothing to do with infrastructure. But now you also state no, and they, something. I'm sorry, go ahead. And they, and they, and they say this, you know, Humpty Dumpty said this uh, in, in quite a scornful tone, as, as you indicate, from Lewis Carroll's phenomenal uh, uh, 19th century work that has all sorts of great quotes in it. I just picked out this one. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not... It's not funny what they're doing nowadays. It is, it is extremely serious, extremely costly. Uh, and it's part of the way that they are able to accomplish what they're doing by removing meaning from words. Uh, they're able to do this because our education system itself no longer in many public schools, as you know, I know you all have talked about this, no longer teach those fundamentals so that people understand what words mean, what sentence structure means, what mathematics means in terms of simply teaching how to arrive at a conclusion and follow a logical path through logical steps. These things are no longer being taught in our schools. So therefore, when 
liberals and Democrats nowadays twist the meaning of words, many in the population don't even know because they have not been taught the proper meaning of words and logical thought. You know, it used to say that words have a meaning and the use of them has a consequence, uh, but that's no longer true. You know, we used to crack up when it used, you said the word gay meant you were happy. And then all of a sudden it meant something completely different. It meant the, the sexual preference of an individual. I, I brings me to the idea of the, the, the famous song uh, Robert Preston sings in Victor Victoria when Paris was gay. <laughs> but, you know, they they tested the water by changing just a few words. Now anything goes. And as you write in your article, it's like trying to nail jello to the wall. And and that's the there there's another way to put that that I wouldn't use in an article trying to nail something else to the wall, but uh <laughs> it's it's true. You mean like they and dumped I, like they dumped on DC in the pink barrels? <laughs> well, uh, something 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 like that. But you know, I, I don't like to, I don't I don't even I don't like to use you know cuss words in mixed company uh, or in my writing and or in speeches. You know, I, and this coarsening of the language uh, by public officials and by people in the media uh, troubles me also. Maybe in a, in a different sense than unanchoring words for meaning, but. Coarsening language and coarsening behavior uh, is very troubling to me because you, you lose something very important in terms of being able to engage in a civil discourse with people. Uh, when, well, when people are shouting and using foul language, uh, and as you mentioned also, you know, taking the word gay as an example, not only does it now mean something very different from what it used to mean, but if you use it in the wrong way, people get angry with you. They get mad. Uh, they get vicious with you and vile, like, you know, Maxine Waters. I, I don't I mean, talk about a vile person. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you served in Congress when Maxine Waters was there, and uh, you had some very interesting things to say about her in another article you wrote. And you had me again cracking up. But one of the main things they want to do is that once they alter the meaning of words to whatever they choose it to mean, how woke they are, they actually work to unravel the moral and social constructs built that created these United States. When they do that, they also are able to alter any anything legal, any contract, any law. They can... They can then turn around and just say whatever we say it means, like Humpty Dumpty says, is what it means. And and it has uh, that. That's a, a very good segue into what they're doing with with our legal system. Once you once you lose the meaning or discard the notion that words have meaning, the next step, of course, is that legal concepts no longer have meaning. And that then removes the, you know, the basic foundation of a civilized society where you don't have any legal protections or constant legal standards to move society forward and on which the majority of people can operate. So you're dismantling not only language, but dismantling our legal system, and that makes it far easier to control people 
and control events, which is exactly what the left wants to do. Well, they're doing that perfectly now with destroying the First and Second Amendment by altering the meaning or telling us that that's not what it really means. This is what it means. They are they're whittling away at our Bill of Rights and then cause the utter destruction of our Constitution. They are, and they're doing it uh, across the board. One of the, you know, and none of this stuff is funny, but you, you probably recall uh, I think it was two, two and a half years ago when the Department of Justice decided that it would uh, outlaw a bump stock, which is a device to make a rifle fire a little faster. You lose accuracy. It's not something that real marksmen use. But they decided they wanted to outlaw bump stocks. So what they did, because they couldn't get it legislatively, they simply redefined the legal definition of a machine gun so that a bump stock, which is simply a piece of plastic molded to fit the, uh, the stock of a firearm, uh, so that a bump stock is a machine gun. They changed the definition of machine gun to include this piece of plastic, which has no moving parts. And they do this, and it has legal consequences. Now, uh, thankfully, a federal court of appeals in the, somewhere in the Midwest recently said you can't do that. But the fact that they did it and got away with it for two years and are still doing it until the Supreme Court says you can't do that uh, illustrates the depth of the problem. They, they can simply redefine a term to include something clearly doesn't fit within that term, and they do it by regulation which has the force of law, and most people don't even know it. No, they did this, uh, I think it was about maybe 10 years ago, they were trying to outlaw the ammunition because it contained lead, and it was harmful to the environment. And oh, yes. That didn't work oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> I remember that one pretty well. Yeah, they, then they said, well, because it contains lead, now it's a controlled we have to do it like a controlled substance because still it's dangerous to the environment. Yeah, you got to Well, and a few and a few years before that, sure. And a few years before that, they wanted to outlaw cop killer bullets. And of course, any bullet, even a 22 short rifle bullet, which is one of the smallest available and the least powerful can kill a person, can kill a police officer if fired in a certain way at a certain distance. So by outlawing, they tried to outlaw cop killer bullets, which would in effect, taken to its logical conclusion, uh, would outlaw all ammunition. I mean, they, and they tried that. They couldn't get it through, but Chuck Schumer continues to try that. And they'll do anything to go after you know, our firearms. Matter of fact, you wrote an article in Full Mag uh, titled, Will Mulan Lobby Become More Than an Ancient Greek Slogan? Um, from my cold, dead hand. They are doing anything and everything for the assault on the Second Amendment. They've already tried that with the veterans through the VA, where some clerk can write in that veteran's uh, file that they felt they were mentally disturbed Next thing you know, the veteran has no idea. No doctor saw him. He went through no testing. But because a clerk wrote it in their folder, the veteran would find that their guns would be confiscated. 
They try that with senior citizens. A gentleman, I believe, in Chicago was a senior citizen that had his bills paid on auto pay. Well, you're not mentally capable to handle your finances. Give us your gun. They're trying anything and everything. Sure. And thankfully, uh, President Trump stopped that. But, of course, now that he unfortunately lost the election last year, uh, Biden is not only undoing these various regulatory reforms like that that Trump instituted, but putting in place all manner of other regulatory uh, mandates uh, because he doesn't have the power yet to get it through the, the Congress. So he's doing it through legislation. And the question that I asked uh, in the article about Molan Labe that you, that you mentioned is the question that conservatives and Second Amendment enthusiasts and Republicans need to be asking Biden and these other gun control advocates, and that is, what are you going to do? How do you propose to take these weapons, these firearms away once you outlaw them? They don't like to answer that, but they need to be forced to answer it because then it will make it starkly clear that they are talking about confiscation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they can turn around and say, well, and because you're legally disabled, uh, you shouldn't be able to handle a firearm. I mean, at the time I went to retire, I had to go and prove that I could still fire the weapon. Otherwise, the police department would have confiscated my weapons. You know, they'll use any and every way of thinking of how to confiscate. So we've got to be very alert. Um, I want to move on a little bit further. Oh, I've got to tell you, though, true story. My sister is now living in Georgia. She's just a little outside north and west of Savannah. So we got her out of New York with her and her husband. <laughs> They're happy. <laughs> they are happy in Georgia. Um, we have just, just yesterday, um, the House voted a bill in to make Washington, D.C. a state. Do you see any problem with that? No, you don't see any problem with that, Z-Bob. No, I mean, uh, the more the merrier, I suppose, in, in, their, uh, in their mind. Oh, this would be ridiculous. One, it flies in the face of what our founders decided would be the appropriate capital for the United States, and that is not a state, as the other states were, but a special uh, a special. Uh, geographic and political unit that was different. It was the capital of the United States. It was not a state. Uh, and they wanted to insulate it from the political issues that they, that they saw already bubbling up when they, uh, when, they formed, when they formed the United States out of the 13 original colonies. Uh, now, the Democrats say, of course, uh, well, what we need to do is this is just equitable to give the people of D.C. Uh, the right to vote for a member of Congress. Well, if that were really their goal, then the appropriate remedy would be to give the District of Columbia geographic area back to Maryland, from which state it was taken from years and years ago. But, of course, they don't want to do that which would accomplish their avowed purpose of giving the people of the District of Columbia a political voice and a vote. No, what they want to do is they want simply to create a political unit that gives them two more senators uh, and at least one voting member of the House that would be guaranteed Democrat, given the demographics, the political demographics of the District of Columbia. It is a raw, partisan power play 
uh, pure and simple. It has nothing to do with principle other than that. Well, now it's going to go to the Senate, where hopefully it'll be filibustered and Manchin will side with Republicans so they don't have the 60 votes to let this proceed. But then if that happens, they've got a backup plan in place. They'll pack the Supreme Court so they'll make a challenge to force it forward, right? That is, uh, that is precisely what they, they, they have in mind. Uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court has been set at nine justices, including the Supreme, Just, uh, the, Supreme uh, the Chief Justice, that is, uh, since the latter mid part of the 19th century, since I think it was 1869, it has been set at nine justices. They are proposing to expand that, I think, in the latest bill to 13 for no reason other than to try and dilute justices that President Trump nominated to the court in which the Senate confirmed during Trump's term in office. Here again, it has nothing to do with principle. It has nothing to do with the law. It has everything to do simply with politics trying to pack the court and hopefully they will not destroy the credibility and the structure of the court by being able to do that. I hope to high heaven that, that, uh, you know, that Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, for example, hold the line against that. I know that Republicans put uh, – uh, let me uh, – one second here, Curtis. Uh, I know there is – Republicans put together legislation to keep the court at nine – but, you know, with the way it's set up right now, with the Democrats controlling all three houses, uh, that's got a snowball chance in health going forward. But what else can they do? Just make an attempt and hopefully the next election cycle we can take back the House and control the Senate. Uh, Curtis, please, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask the congressman about a poll that I saw recently um, the majority of Americans do not want court packing on the Supreme Court, but um, I really don't think it's going to make a difference with the Democrats because because they are loyal and uh, committed to their agenda. Um, do you feel the same way? Uh, the polls that don't show what they want to show are going to be to them completely irrelevant. They don't care. They don't care what the people think. They care about what they can do to maintain control for their political party. That's all they care about, unfortunately. That is very, very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Um, I want to move along a little bit here. Um, recently, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game was yanked out of Atlanta over a voting law that was passed within the state, which far fairer than the voting law to the state in which the game was given. Far more fair to everyone and equitable. Uh, but Georgia, you guys are not going to roll over because of the boycott. What really gets me is that one of the businesses that is boycotting Georgia is headquartered in Atlanta, Delta Airlines. I mean, I owned a travel agency. I also worked for American Express Business Travel. As far as I know, Delta's the main hub is Atlanta. I mean, it's like you shoot yourself in the foot. But you guys are going to get be all right. 
It is uh, it is stupid to the nth degree. But for for many many years, uh, you know, those of us in Atlanta uh, and I fly Delta all the time. Whenever I fly, I fly Delta because uh, it it is uh, headquartered in Atlanta and it's the hub, and you can get so many flights to virtually anywhere in the world out of Atlanta on Delta. But for many years, Delta's uh, CEOs, not just the current one, but uh, you know, the prior uh, two CEOs in particular, they've all been very, very woke, very liberal, uh, very much uh, against conservatives. So this really, it doesn't surprise us uh, in, in Atlanta who follow these things uh, that you know, Delta jumped on this uh, this idiotic bandwagon, uh, but they were really caught uh, sort of red-handed because uh, Governor Kemp, uh, who signed the measures uh, just a few weeks ago, the voting reform measures, uh, he had gone in his administration and the legislature had asked Delta specifically before the law was uh, was passed, uh, "Do you have any problems with this?" And they didn't have any. You know. Suddenly, they had an epiphany after he signed it and after the far left uh, got upset about it, then Delta all of a sudden decided they had a problem with it. But here again, it just uh, illustrates that all of this is just about politics and trying to appease the left. It has nothing to do with principle. It has nothing to do with voting rights. It's just pure politics. Absolutely. And it's also the pandering to a minority voice. They've got a loud voice, yes, but to the louder they are, I guess the more that you listen to them. Um, you've got the Colin Kaepernick, who now, again, is a spokesman for Nike, supporter of Black Lives Matter. But hold it, wait a minute, where are Nike sneakers made out of? Oh, that's right, China. And who's manning those factories? Oh, that's right, the slave labor. So you're, you're against slavery, but you're wearing items that was made by slave labor. And you are promoting items made by slave labor. The hypocrisy that we see coming from the left is absolutely stunning. And yet I wonder why I'm, I constantly get amazed. It, uh, it doesn't matter. They've been doing this for years. They have the mainstream media on their side, which protects them by not answering or not asking the tough questions, by not, uh, by not uh, demanding answers. Uh, and thank goodness that we do have uh, you know, shows like yours and, and other conservative radio shows across the country uh, that can get the truth out and ask these questions uh, of the left that the mainstream media is not going to. It just gives them a free ride. I mean, look at what uh, NBC did just, uh, I guess, the day before last uh, with this uh, shooting by the Ohio uh, police officer against the knife-wielding uh, 16-year-old. Uh, he uh, he saved a life. It was very clear if anyone watches the videos. But uh, NBC National News News conveniently just omitted parts of it and changed the narrative. Thankfully, though, there were videos that showed what NBC did, and the 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 truth got out. Now that won't stop the left from claiming that the police officer did something wrong. Uh, but at least the truth did get out because citizens uh, and the police did have video cam recordings of what actually happened. Yeah, and Greg Kelly did a great job on uh, uh, on reporting on that one. And uh, matter of fact, I worked under his dad twice. My ex-husband worked under him. Uh, he was his commanding officer when he was stationed in New York. Um, 
and then when I became a New York City police officer, I served under him there. So I knew him when I attended bar at the Marine Corps Club. <laughs> I knew him when I became a cop. Um, so I, I did things backwards. Instead of going into business after I retired, I did it first, and then I, <laughs> I did it backwards. Anyway, um, you also have a podcast yourself uh, that you have. People can find out about you by going to your website, which is your name, BobBar.org, but you also have something called Liberty Guard, which I found very, very interesting. Tell us about that. Liberty Guard is a, uh, it's what's known as a 501c4, which is a, uh, a nonprofit educational uh, organization under the IRS laws. And what we do at Liberty Guard, we've been around for about 11 years or so, is we, you know, sort of consistent with the name, we uh, engage in, in actions that protect liberty. Uh, we fought against uh, uh, Obamacare, for example. We fought against uh, TSA's uh, full body cam several years ago. Uh, and we're fight, we continue to fight to this day against government abuses. Uh, we support meaningful uh, uh, election reform. Uh, we fight against the uh, the H.R. 1 piece of legislation that the Democrats are trying to ram through that would institutionalize voter fraud on a national scale to a degree we've never seen before. So, uh, you know, we're very active and a lot of what I write, I write uh, for Liberty Guard and uh, as as uh, the uh, president of so, you know, people can find out uh, the articles that I write uh at least two, sometimes three a week, uh, by going to uh, our Liberty Guard uh, uh, website. And we have, as you mentioned, uh, a new blog uh, called Bob Barr's Laws of the Universe, uh, which uh, we're starting to get out there. Yeah, I, I find that very interesting. Um, so I, I did not get a chance to listen to any of them, but the last one you did is don't get the Fed mad at you. They have guns, subpoenas, and lots of your money. And this is what we started talking about at the beginning of the show. They're going to find any way in which to take away our rights and liberties. And I found it interesting that the FBI has changed the classification of the shooting of the Republican ball team when Steve Scalise was almost, almost killed. Uh, and instead of classifying it as a deliberate attack, a hate crime against conservatives and Republicans, they said, no, it's just... You know, uh, it, it it wasn't that at all. It's just something completely different and not as bad. I found that very interesting. It is. I'm I'm very disappointed in in much of what the FBI has has done recently. Uh, when I was the U.S. Attorney in Atlanta under Presidents Reagan and Bush one, I did a lot of work with the FBI, uh, and they were very very good. Uh, they followed the law. Uh, they didn't uh, go off on tangents. Uh, it was not political. But nowadays, uh, the FBI leadership and the Department of Justice leadership often is either deliberately uh, liberally partisan politically uh, or afraid to stand up to efforts to politicize the FBI. And the example that you cite is a perfect, uh, perfect example of that. Unfortunately, with uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, under President Biden, uh, it's going to get far worse, uh, inevitably. I mean, Merrick Garland, he will never forgive the Republicans in the Senate for denying him the Supreme Court 
position that he coveted. So he's going to do everything he can to go after uh, Republicans and conservatives. We already see it. Uh, They're going after the Minneapolis Police Department now, uh, and they're going to do that with other police departments all across the country. Unfortunately, they are trying to nationalize policing in our country. You know, there was many attempts to nationalize policing, and one of them was, believe it or not, it was under Bill Clinton when he started sending money down for community policing, and we said that was going to open the door to them taking over police departments. Uh, that didn't work out too well, so now they're trying another way of doing it. Yeah, and one of the ways that they do it is they'll go after a police department saying, oh, you are uh, you are going after people uh, with disabilities or you are, you are systemically racist or whatnot. They'll bring an action for civil rights violation against the police department, and then they'll say to the police department, well, we can make this thing go away if you'll agree to this consent decree, which puts you under the thumb of the federal government for the next 10 or 12 years. And it makes it very difficult for the police department to recruit, retain officers, train officers. It sets up citizen review panels, and then you have the federal government looking at everything you're doing. And it simply makes the problem worse and worse and worse. And, of course, then the federal government will say, well, we need to do more and more and more. Uh, It's going to create an awful problem for police departments in this country. It was bad under under the Obama administration when they did this. It's going to be far worse now. Well, Bob, people can find you on your website, bobbar.org. There's also a link on your website to Liberty Guard and to your podcast so people can just one shop uh, on, on your site. I have to get you back on. You know, if you got something, just have your gal, you know, shoot me an email and I'll bring you on ASAP. Uh, I'm sorry it has been so long. It's my fault. Well, we, we I will help remedy that, and I will make sure that they do that. Hopefully on a regular basis we can get together with you and your listeners. Oh, Heritage Foundation sends me some someone every week, so why not you join us? <laughs> I look forward to being with you all. It's really a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And, and not only is it substantive, but you have one thing that I really enjoy, and that is a sense of humor. <laughs> I have to be. <laughs> Because one of these days I will write my book, which you've written three books, and my book will be titled In Life There Must Be Love and Laughter. Or well, why is there a hard boiled egg in the middle of my living room floor? Long story. <laughs> I like God it. God bless you. I love it. Thank you for the hard work you do. Take care, Congressman. And, and, okay. Thank you. Right. Bye. All right. Bob Barr, check out his website, bobbar.org. And I see our next guest is up in the showroom. So let's bring on victim number four of the day. Welcome for the first time to the show, Allie Bloyd. Did I pronounce the last name correctly? You certainly did. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. Unfortunately, you were booked last minute, so I did not have a chance to read your book. So we'd have to have you come back on after you send me a copy. <laughs> but you've got a book. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Your book is called Uncensored America, Thought-Provoking Poetry on Faith, Family, and Freedom. And has there been an assault on all three like I have never seen before? This is a very timely book. 
Yeah, that's actually really what inspired me to go ahead and publish it. I've been writing poetry all of my life, but typically, you know, it was really for myself. I shared it with my family, not much else. But over the last year, obviously, we've seen so many crazy things taking place, and that's definitely been reflected in my writing. So I started to post them on some of my social channels and got just a very interesting response. I got a lot of positive responses from it, but the thing that stood out to me the most was that Typically, when you're talking about some of these issues today, especially on social media, people are so quick to argue with each other and bicker and not really take to heart anything that's being said or really open up a discussion. But these poems were doing that, and that is what stood out to me the most. So it really made me realize that poetry could be a medium that actually reaches people that other forms of writing may not have the ability to do. So I'm very excited. I think uh, the response has been great so far, but I can't wait for more people to read it and to see what the impacts might be long term. I'd love to see how you put, you know, the Second Amendment <laughs> defense into poetry. So I'm looking forward to reading the book. But you are a strong proponent of the Second Amendment. And as I understand, you wrote extensively about that in your book. Um, tell us some of the stuff that uh, some of the issues dealing with the Second Amendment that you attacked. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to write about this because there are a lot of different issues that are surrounding this. And one of my favorites is called Hope for the Best, Prepare for the Worst. And this is really something that is hoping to shine light on why our Second Amendment rights are so important for someone who may already agree with that or for someone who maybe doesn't see it as the necessity that it is. And it's talking about we all hope for peace, but we know that in this world we live in, it's not necessarily what takes place. We hope for protection from God, but we know these things take place, so it's up to us to be prepared. We hope for honest leaders, but in this world we live in, it would be foolish to believe that uh, some people do not want to gain more control, and most importantly, that we hope to never have to shoot our weapons in self-defense, but in the world we live in, we know that those opportunities may arise, and it's better to hope for the best, but most importantly, prepare for the worst. And then a lot of the other poems are talking about uh, some of the hypocrisy surrounding the gun control debate, those who have private security on a 24-7 basis trying to tell us that we should not be able to have weapons at our defense. Uh, so a lot of different things and a lot of different poems, but I hope for the best, prepare for the worst is probably my favorite because I think it does a good job of poetically explaining the need for this. No matter what anyone says, it's very hard to debate what's you know, spoken in this poetry. Yeah, well, we find that, you know, they're doing anything and everything to try to uh, make it seem like guns, gun violence, they call it, is an epidemic. You know, it, it's not violent people. It's the guns that are creating the violence. Uh, it, 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 they're going to use phrases that are going to tug at the heartstrings of the typical liberal and then make the person sitting on the right go, well, maybe they've got a point because the way they're talking about it, they're using our words and twisting them around to mean something completely different and then using it as an excuse to get what program they want in place. Yeah, I think it's a very weird way to phrase it. I have never once in my life gun violence an epidemic. I see it as a problem, but it's a human problem. It's a heart 
problem. Uh, the interesting thing about gun crime statistics is that most of them are not actually crimes that are inside of those statistics. A huge percentage of them are suicides. About 61% of all gun deaths are suicides. And unfortunately, that's a, a mental health issue, as most of the gun-related incidents are, in my opinion. Some of them are simply evil people who wish to do harm to others. And I want to say that is a mental health issue, but really it's a heart issue. But the other percentage, that's going to be a gun safety issue because sometimes there are accidental gun discharges with people who simply don't know how to properly store their weapon or they don't take the time to educate themselves on the safety. But guns do not kill people. People kill people. And very interesting to see that when it suits them, they will say that it's the person responsible, not the gun, but in every other situation, it's the gun, not the person. And truth be told, I don't think any amount of gun regulation is ever going to deter violent gun crimes because people who commit violent gun crimes have no regard for the law, plain and simple. And guns will always be available through a black market, even if they are banned. There's too many weapons to confiscate them all. You're never going to do that, except from law-abiding citizens who will need them the most at that point, but who need them the most right here and right now. So it's a it's a very weird way to phrase it. I think the language in a lot of different scenarios is what they focus on the most, because some of these things are simply there to trigger an emotion from people or to try and make it sound a certain way to get their point across without having the real facts and data to back that up. Now, the, the, you hear them, weapons of war, one of Nancy Pelosi's, or I call her nasty Pelosi, uh, phrases. You don't need a weapon of war. Uh, wait a minute. Any firearm can be used as a weapon of war. George Patton went to war holstering a pearl-handled Colt revolver. It, that was a weapon of war, so that means that any revolver, any gun, but it's a weapon of war, and that tugs at your heartstrings and goes, no, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to war. I don't want to be in the middle of a war, but what else is a gun for? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's another example of the language being used that far too often is extremely vague and damaging and sometimes has no real meaning at all. Weapons of war and assault weapons, that literally can mean anything because you can assault anyone with any type of weapon. You can assault someone with a slingshot if you so choose. And because their language is so vague and nondescript about the specific things they want to do, they somehow get away with never thoroughly explaining what gun control or what gun regulation actually means. And anytime someone is unwilling to get specific, about what it is they want to remove and why with the data to back it up, you can only assume, especially based on their historical actions, that they want to take it all away. And if they can get people to agree that a weapon of war or an assault weapon shouldn't be readily available to any American citizen, well, they would have the ability to take anything away because like you and I have just stated, anything could be classified as a weapon of war or an assault weapon. And so it is a very dangerous road to go down, but they are focused so much on the language so that they do not have to address the facts. And the fact is that gun control does not limit gun violence. It never has, and it never will, because law-abiding citizens are the only ones who would comply. 
Absolutely. Go ahead, Curtis. This is my co-host. Okay. Hey, there's a, a notion out there that all we have to do is enforce the the laws already on the books, that we don't need any more laws. What are your thoughts on that? I definitely think that having enforcement of our current laws is important, but I think that there is a much bigger issue here, and I do think that it's the mental health issue that has to be addressed. The recent shootings that we've seen happening those people legally obtained firearms. They didn't commit any sort of crime in getting those. They passed the background checks. And so those had nothing to do with enforcing or not enforcing the laws on the books. I think what it is is that we are living in a time where people have really been mentally destroyed in so many ways. If you look at what happens when you lock people up in their homes for a year, when you take away their work potentially, you take away their ability to provide for their family, you turn on fear-based and and hate-based, quite frankly, you know, news 24-7, that's going to impact people, especially people who are not already strong in their mental state. And I don't know how to even really go about it in a lot of ways because it comes down to families taking care of each other, paying attention to each other's mental state and really trying to provide help and support before it gets to that point. I don't think we're doing that as families, but I don't think communities are paying attention. And especially in a time when people are so disconnected from others in their community, you know, kids and younger people, while they may have been in school and they may have had a teacher that was there to really pay attention, they haven't had that. And we've seen an increase in suicides using guns in the last year, especially. But we also have taken people away from a workplace where people are engaging together on a daily basis. So many people are working remotely. Very easy to present yourself in a 30-minute staff meeting um, as somebody who is doing okay, and you may not be. So the disconnect in our communities, in our families, and the factors that have arisen in the last year, I think that they're playing a very serious role in what we're seeing right now. But I don't believe that Enforcing our existing laws would be a bad thing. I can guarantee you that adding new restrictions would, but I think it ultimately comes down to hearts of people. If someone wants to hurt someone else and commit an act of violence, there's nothing that any law is going to do to change that. That's a heart problem. And then we have seriously mentally disturbed people who are committing some of these acts or committing suicide. And that's that's a mental health problem. And I think that unless we're willing to address the root causes of these things, we're not going to see gun crimes or really violence of any kind. Cause you can, you can commit violence with so many different things. We're not going to see that go away. It's only going to increase. Yeah. Uh, these lockdowns are really wrecking havoc on the mental health of our nation and our children. Um, but they'll use any excuse uh, gun violence. So we got to take the guns away. We've got to ban them, do red flag laws. And red flag laws have been used against people that have absolutely no problem, that were peaceful, calm, loving, legal citizens with a legal gun. Mm-hmm. They can be twisted and turned against us at any moment, which is what we are seeing at this, this time. Like Fauci, one day he says we can start 
mingling in society again. Next day, no, we've got to stay in lockdown. One day, you know, we wear one mask, now it's three masks. Uh, you get the vaccine, you don't need to wear a mask. Nope, now you need to wear a mask even if you get the vaccine. So it's not one shot, it's not two shots, now it's three shots. This man flip-flops more than I ever thought John Kerry could. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that it's very, very dangerous to ever take away the rights of someone who has done nothing wrong. And while red flag laws, I think that there is there is a place for something like it, but I don't think in the way that it's being presented or used. I think that any time someone is worried about someone committing an act of violence against themselves or someone else, that is about the person. That's not about the firearm. And one of the biggest issues I have with the gun control legislation that's already been passed through the House is the fact that they're saying someone from the federal government is going to do a mental health assessment, a psychological evaluation on not only you, but everyone in your household, including your ex-spouse. That is a horrible idea to ever put your mental health status in the hands of someone in the federal government to deem you competent or not competent or a, a hazard in any way. There are no regulations and standards around that. And once somebody is labeled as mentally unstable or a, a danger to themselves or others, there are so many other things that can take place from that that are truly scary. I mean, you look at somebody like Britney Spears. She is one of the most successful musicians of all time. She's been deemed mentally unstable, uncompetent, whatever you want to call it, and she has not been able to control her own life, her own finances, her own children for over a decade now. She's not able to get out of it because once you say that somebody is mentally unstable, virtually nothing they say is taken seriously anymore, and it's, it's a really scary situation to me because saying that about anyone without the proper evidence or clear definitions, which no one in the government seems to ever want to give us, that is just uh, a terrible mess waiting to happen. It is. It is. And I, I, I find flabbergasted, actually is what I am, with some of the stuff that they've thrown into that bill, how they're going to come after us. Uh, hopefully we'll have, you know, places like Gun Owners of America, uh, the National Association of Gun Rights, um, the NRA, and that they would prompt con- uh, the Senate to filibuster it and not let it pass. Otherwise, we may see whatever few freedoms and liberties we have to go right out the window, because once that happens and the Second Amendment falls, so falls the rest of the Constitution. And that is how much that is at stake right now. Yes, I totally agree with you. And the fact that the current administration is actively talking about removing the filibuster, um, that is to me probably the scariest thing right now because you're exactly right. Once that is no longer in place, anything that they have on the table could pass. Things that people for the last several months have said, oh, I know it's crazy, but don't worry, it's not going to pass the Senate. Well, I, I would love to believe that that's true, but we have never seen this type of legislation be introduced openly in our country before. Some of the most extreme bills I've ever seen that actively work against our constitutional 
Right. And if there seems to be no regard for the Constitution. So if you get rid of the filibuster, everything else is on the table. And all of these things could become law. And if they do, we're in for a wild ride. And I think that everyone needs to seriously think about what they will choose to do in that situation, because our constitutional rights are finite. We just had a president say that no constitutional amendment is absolute. That is a very scary statement to hear the commander of the free world, because those are supposed to be absolute. That's their entire point. And when you start removing them and give people no recourse to appeal them, and you don't even care what the majority of America thinks about it, you can clearly see that it's not about what's best for America. It's not about what Americans actually want in their lives. It's about what a small group of people want and that they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. So I am concerned that these things are going to pass. I think, you know, we're to that point where we need to realize that it's a possibility and ask ourselves what, what will happen if they do? What are citizens going to do to stand up for their constitutional rights? How are we going to address this if these things do pass? And, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that if Americans come together and stand up for these things together instead of arguing with each other over all these little things or these news stories that are constantly put out simply as a distraction in so many different cases, I think that we'd have a much better shot of doing that because there is power in numbers. But as long as they can keep the country divided on whatever issues they choose to focus on that are divisive, I think we're going to have uh, a tough road trying to get what we need to actively overturn some of what is trying to be put into law right now. Well, not only just worrying about what the government can do to control us and to take away our rights and liberties and stifle our message, um, you've got us being attacked on all different levels, whether or not it's through the education system or through corporate imaging. Um, there's a university student, a University of Virginia student, that was banned from school for what they called a violent threat. And all this kid did, there was a, a professor that was giving a presentation on the subject of microaggressions. Uh, the professor's name is Beverly Cowell Adams. She's an assistant dean. And the student, I cannot pronounce his last name, Kieran Bhattacharya, uh, that's the best I can do. And as she was doing this, he raised his hand and he asked her very politely, thank you for your presentation. I had a few questions. Just to clarify your definition of microaggressions, is it a requirement to be a victim of the microaggression that you are a member of a marginalized group? That's the question he started off with. And then they got into a little bit of a debate, and they, everyone there, and this was videotaped, said it was a very polite disagreement, and Adams maintained that the microaggression theory was a broad and important topic, and the spikes caused real harm. And the student said um, he expressed a scientific skepticism that microaggressions could be distinguished from an unintentional rude statement. Well, she filed a complaint against the student after this discussion, and he has been banned from the university, and he was going there for a medical degree. He's kicked off campus. He's not allowed to continue his studies and pursue a career in medicine. 
because this one professor felt that her cause was more important than his questions. This is what they can do to us. I I see the education issue as one of the single biggest issues that we're dealing with as a country right now because if you look back throughout history, if you want to change a culture of a country, if you want to change the ideology in a country, you start in the school system. You start with young people who are there uh, in hopes that they will learn important information from someone who is wiser, who has really thoroughly studied these things, but it, it also is supposed to be a place where ideas are discussed, and that is not what's been happening. Unfortunately, this has been taking place for a long time without really many people paying attention to it, and I think that the chickens are really coming home to roost right now because we see that this is no longer um, just some of the, the fringe discussions that are taking place. This is taking place throughout colleges, now throughout high schools, and even elementary and middle schools across our country, and it is such a serious issue. It is hurting real families. I feel for that student, but he needs to take legal action, and he needs to do it understanding that his right as a student to question his professors and get real answers based on facts is important, but also that free speech is important, and that someone does not get to control your future by the way they feel about a genuine and legitimate question that you're asking. And until people are willing to stand up and actually push these issues through the legal system as much as humanly possible, they're going to continue to do this. But I also think because of what's happened to parents who have children in public school throughout the last year, there has been a clear distinction that they do not care about the well-being of your child. And because of that, so many more parents are choosing to homeschool than ever before. And I think that we all need to take the education of our children so seriously and be willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that they get an actual education, that their values and their morals and their ethics are coming from us, and that they are not being force-fed information that, first and foremost, you know, if a professor can't realistically with facts and data and evidence back up their claim, then it's not even a good education to begin with, but that we need to take control of that and we need to say, what are we going to do to collectively change the education system? And I think it can start with homeschooling coalitions because there are so many parents that they don't have the opportunity to homeschool their children. Their job prevents them from being able to do it. But if we had groups of children that are homeschooled that are coming together and have the ability to take some of that burden off of the parents that are not able to be there with them but can trust that the information that they're being taught and the curriculum is something that they can go through that is open and honest and transparent, I think we're going to be in a much more power position because our public school systems and colleges, they need our money to survive. If parents stop sending their kids to these schools, those schools aren't going to be around for too much longer. If parents choose to take their kids out of public education and opt for something different, whatever that is, those schools are not going to have that money. And so money, I think, is the only thing that certain groups listen to. That's all they care about. And so if you take away the source of their finances, they've got to pay attention because otherwise they're not going to be around for much longer. 
you know, it's it's funny because I held my Tea Party meeting uh, last Monday, and we had a whole mess of new people because people are starting to get fired up when they're seeing what's happening to our nation. And a couple was talking to us about homeschooling, and she was so furious because they both work, so she can't homeschool. So they found a local school that they thought was conservative, traditional education, only to find out that they're starting to teach the kids critical race theory and gender fluidity. And she was furious to find out about that. And we had a state senator and a state representative talking about legislation, and they're crafting legislation, thankfully we are a red state, to make the money follow the child. The child does not follow the money. When they started busing, they turned around and they said, well, no, you cannot send your child here. We're telling you where you send your child. And I got bused more than two miles away from my house. Now, Camilla Harris, she got to ride the bus. I got to walk the two miles because I had to get my younger brother and sister on their buses. So I rode home, but not through there. But we have to make the money follow the child. And we've got to get more states to pass legislation because then it affects not just ourselves, our local school boards and quality of education, but it it then climbs up to the federal level because the feds are not going to get as much money from us because it's going to stay locally. Yeah, I think that that would be the smartest solution, yet no one is actively pushing for it. And those that are pushing for it, they are having some of those overturned. So I'm in Kentucky, and I was reading one of our state legislatures. He had, after the session ended, he had a really detailed list of everything that was done, everything that happened, any vetoes, any bills that were passed. And there was a strong education bill in there that it did not take money away from public schools, but it did provide parents with essentially education credits for them to be able to decide what they wanted to do with that money. And our governor vetoed it without any reason behind why he was vetoing it. That would have been a great step in the right direction, but we have resistance from people who ultimately seem to be pandering to corporate interests or their own personal self-interest that do not want this to happen. And in my state, I recently was doing some research on it. You know, what is the price that public education gets per student in my state. It's anywhere from 11000 up to $20,000, depending on the county that you're in. Well, I can guarantee you, if you gave parents 11000 to $20,000 per year that is dedicated to their child's education, that they can do with as they see fit, we would not have an education issue in this country. You could take that money and put it in private school. You could send them to a charter school. You could send them to public school, or you could homeschool them and actually have the financial capabilities to maybe not have one parent work, and they could stay home and educate their child. That money is for our students' education, and that's how much a school gets for our child going to that school. That money should simply be put into a credit for parents to decide, but as we've seen recently, for whatever reason, teachers' unions seem to have this immense amount of power. Why that is, I'm not really sure, and I wish someone would answer that question. Why are these unions so powerful in public policy? But that needs to be something we all push for because until parents have the funds that they are ultimately paying in to be able to decide what happens to their child's education, 
they're going to continue to be at the mercy of whatever these schools decide to teach and however they decide to teach it, which has tremendous impacts on that child's life and their family's life. I've seen relationships ruined from what students are being taught in schools, and it really just disconnects them from their parents in so many ways. It's incredibly sad to see. Well, Allie, uh, people can find you where? Well, you can find information about my book at uncensoredamericabook.com. I would love if you guys would check it out. It really is something powerful, I think, for everyone. Um, but you can also find me on social media at Allie Bloyd or Allie Bloyd Media. Well, thank you. It has been a pleasure to have you on. You are so much fun to talk to. And I have tons more to talk to you about, but next time. Yes, absolutely. Hopefully after you've read the book, I'll send you a copy soon. <laughs> Thank you, Allie, and God bless you Take for care. the hard work Thanks you so do. Much. You too. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that was Allie Bloyd. Check her out. There's a link to her book on the show page, so just click on that. And let's bring our final victim up into the batter's box. Welcome back from the Heritage Foundation at Heritage.org, Zach Smith. Good afternoon, Zach. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Thank you so much for having me on. Man, there's so much to talk about that's been going on, and it's like every single day, it's like a new assault. It used to be you would get hit with everything on a Friday, so all the TV talk shows would have something to talk about on Sunday. But now it is nonstop, almost 24-7. Have, have we run into a complete freefall? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. There, there is a lot happening right now, and it's coming fast and furiously. And unfortunately, you know, we're seeing a lot happening, not only in Washington, D.C., with things like H.R. 1, with H.R. 51, D.C. statehood, but also around the country with uh, rogue prosecutors not prosecuting crimes, uh, with law and order deteriorating in many cities. And then, of course, you know, very real questions and concerns about the future of policing in America uh, after the Derek Chauvin trial and some of the other, uh, you know, very unfortunate and sad incidents that have taken place over the past uh, several weeks. And so there, there is absolutely a lot happening right now in our country. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely stunning. And uh, the Chauvin trial, boy, when you have a judge turn around to the defense saying you have means for a um, reversal, that's unheard of. Furthermore, it's completely unheard of to see a civil settlement and payout prior to even the trials happening. Normally, once you have the criminal trial, you have your verdict, then you go for the civil trial. But this was done vast backwards. Well, one of the big concerns, you know, regardless of who you are or what crime you're accused of, you're innocent until proven guilty, and you want to be sure that everyone gets a free fair trial. And so one of the, the very troubling things to me about the Derek Chauvin trial uh, was the, the pressure that seemed to be exerted uh, that unless a particular outcome was reached, there was going to be violence or rioting in the streets. You know, we had uh, Maxine Waters uh, in Minnesota the weekend before the jury began deliberations, uh, basically saying that she wanted to see a guilty, guilty, guilty verdict and that if if it wasn't a guilty, guilty, guilty verdict, uh, that folks need to take to the streets and keep the pressure up. Uh, 
Uh, that kind of incendiary rhetoric is uh, troubling and very dangerous and really in a lot of ways uh, undermines uh, a core tenet of our system of government that everyone is entitled to a free, fair trial, uh, free from outside influence. Well, in the title of the show, I've talked about hypocrites and con artists, and you mentioned the number one, Maxine Waters. Now, that's funny because we had Joe Collins, who's running for her seat out of California on at the start of the show, and then we had former Congressman Bob Barr on just a little bit a while ago, and you mentioned Maxine Waters and watched him just turn red and blow his top. Now, this is where the utter hypocrisy comes from. They impeached Trump for claiming that he incited a riot in his speech. And then Maxine Waters does incite a riot, and no one touches her. Well, look, if you thought that what President Trump did was inciting a riot, then there is no conceivable way that you don't think what Maxine Waters did isn't also uh, inciting a riot or within that same camp. And so, again, you know, Maxine Waters' statements were troubling, uh, but what was you know, even more troubling and should concern all of us is the utter failure of the Democratic members of Congress to hold her accountable, uh, to, to censure her, as was being proposed. And in fact, Speaker Nancy Pelosi even went so far as to say that she didn't think uh, Maxine Waters had anything to apologize for. Uh, which is just, you know, frankly absurd and insulting if if you actually watch the video of what she said. Yeah, and I just, my mom, God bless her, 89, she looked at it and she goes, what? And then, of course, she had her hearing aids in so she could hear. But uh, even she understood that what Maxine Warden did was deliberately incite a riot. And it's not the first time she's done that. She's told the crowd, get up in their face if you see them where they're eating. And what they do? You had the BLM go into a restaurant in New York City, cursing people out and tell them, we don't want your money, but tip 30%. Well, look, I think it's important. I think it's important for us in our country, you know, to recognize, you know, there seems to be a double standard right now uh, that depending on who you are, what your political views may be, you can get a pass for breaking the law. And I think we need to make clear that law and order benefits all of us as a society and that no matter who you are or what your political views may be, if you break the law, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be prosecuted, and you're going to be held accountable for your actions. And unfortunately, right now in so many places across the country, uh, like Portland, Oregon, for instance, where riots have been taking literally night after night after night for over a year at this point, uh, that's just not happening. And we see the results in, in the you know, breakdown of basic governmental functions in those places. And we're seeing the breakdown of the ability for law enforcement to function. Um, was it the Minneapolis? police department that put out a message saying that they're going to have to call close two districts uh, because there are more than somewhere between five and seven hundred cops short. Who well, would I, want to be a police officer? Well, I haven't seen that specific uh, press release, but I, I think your point is well taken. You know, one of the things I think we should all be concerned about is seeing kind of a Ferguson effect on steroids. You know, if you recall after 
the incidents in Ferguson, Missouri, several years ago, police officers began to pull back, uh, under enforcing crime uh, because they were afraid of, you know, being criminally prosecuted or held civilly liable or potentially fired from their jobs or disciplined uh, if they made, uh, you know, a split-second decision that was later second-guessed. Uh, and so, you know, we, we saw the results of that in terms of violent crime rates uh, were beginning to rise. And if you look back at the violent crime rates from the past year, uh, you can see that many cities across the country really cannot afford uh, to experience uh, another Ferguson effect. You know, if you look in places like St. Louis, Missouri, uh, the murder rate there is up by over 36% from 2019. And in this year, 2021, it's already on pace uh, to, to, you know, have more murders than in 2020. And so, you know, look, if a law enforcement officer breaks the law, does something wrong, they should be held accountable. But we have to recognize that our men and women in law enforcement face tough situations day in and day out and are often asked to make life and death decisions in a matter of seconds. And so when law enforcement is permitted to do their job uh, under appropriate restrictions and circumstances, uh, again, it benefits us as a society uh, when we we have our laws enforced and can be sure uh, that our men and women in law enforcement are able to do their jobs. You know, I, I don't know if I could do the job today. You know, I did it back in the day where we didn't have cameras, you know, video cameras aimed at us all the time. We didn't have the button cameras. That stuff did not exist back then. And if somebody did have a video, that was a very expensive piece of equipment and very few and far between to use. But now, today, well, but every, every moment, every movement right. is, is video. But in some ways as well, you know, that benefits law enforcement officers because we've seen the incident uh, in Columbus, Ohio, you know, where the, mm-hmm. the, the young woman was, was shot. Uh, while it appeared she was in the process of stabbing someone. And the narrative that came out immediately after that incident uh, seemed to be very different than the one that was, you know, captured on the officer's body camera. And so in some ways, you know, having the, the dash cameras, the body cameras can benefit law enforcement officers and help uh, promote, you know, greater, uh, a greater level of transparency uh, to protect both the community and the officers themselves. Well, that also backfires on people such as NBC that alters the video to make it look like something completely different. The same thing with the CNN video. That backfired on them, too. Uh, you edit it to mean something else. Uh, well, someone else has more footage that has the truth on it. So in ways, yes, I agree that it does help. But what I'm talking about is the environment now that the least right. little thing can be taken completely out of context. You know, why didn't they taser? Well, first off, you don't know who this woman is. You don't know what her, her background is. You couldn't even tell if she was 16. To me, she looked like she was 30. Um, every single movement is being questioned. And rather than right. the community trying to work with the police department, if they feel there's something wrong, and making things better for both sides, they turn around and say, no, let's just get rid of them and let social workers respond. Well, that worked out real well in California because the social worker did respond and was killed. 
Well, that's why I think it's so important to moving forward to focus on what smart reforms look like, what reforms will help police officers be better able to do their jobs while also gaining the trust of the communities they serve. And so one of the proposals right now that's being pushed in Congress is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And unfortunately, this bill uh, is not a smart policing reform. It has some aspects that are okay, like encouraging officers uh, to use body cameras, encouraging increased training on de-escalation techniques and those sorts of things. Uh, but it also has some bad provisions. It would prohibit the federal government from transferring equipment uh, to many jurisdictions. It would ban uh, tools that are useful to law enforcement officers in some circumstances, like no-knock warrants. And then it would also expand the instances uh, where officers could be federal, federally prosecuted while making what exactly exact conduct is prohibited uh, more unclear. And when you couple that with the fact that it would also eliminate qualified immunity, which is a, a type of a defense officers can raise when they're civilly sued, uh, you know, it really does uh, seem like if that act becomes law, it would do uh, exactly what we were just talking about in that it would really fuel a Ferguson effect on steroids. And, of course, we'd see, uh, you know, it would be much more difficult to recruit police officers, to retain police officers, and communities uh, would suffer as a result. And the police officers that do come forward for the job are not going to be the quality that you want. That is for sure. Right. Uh, when they lower right. hiring requirements, you get a lower quality. And at times, you do get actual criminals who have been convicted of a crime as your police officer. Uh, that's not what we want to see in our society because that does not work. My partner, she used to do the background checks on the people that were being recruited, and she told me time and time again, you do a background check, and this guy's got a felony, and he's applying to become a New York City cop. And right, it, right. It, that's what we got to end up with. No, you're absolutely right. We want to be encouraging quality applicants to become police officers, and a lot of the rhetoric you're hearing right now, a lot of the atmosphere makes that difficult. And again, I, I think if the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passes, uh, you'll see it become that much more difficult to get quality applicants who, who are willing to, to face, frankly, these onerous conditions. And so, you know, I think it's really important for everyone to let their senators, their representatives know uh, that, that they do not support this bill and that if reforms are going to take place, uh, they should, uh, you know, start fresh, start anew and really disregard many of the, the very problematic provisions in this bill. Yeah, I would fight this one tooth and nail, especially taking away the qualified uh, immunity, because what well, officer is that going to respond, period? Hey, I'll get more money uh, installing plumbing than I would walking a footpost. Well, and let me just highlight how, how ridiculous it is, the, what's happening in qualified immunity in this case. Qualified immunity can be invoked by any government official. 
This bill would eliminate it only for law enforcement officers. So essentially what you could have, you could have uh, any other government official, uh, including university administrators who are often sued on First Amendment grounds. So the university administrators would get to sit in their offices for weeks on end, take their time making a decision, consult with their attorneys, uh, and then if they're alleged to have violated someone's rights, they would be sued and could still invoke qualified immunity. An officer on the street who has to make a split-second life-or-death decision that is then sued and accused of violating someone's rights because of that could not invoke qualified immunity. And so this approach to, to reversing or revising qualified immunity really seems to be upside down, and it certainly should not be eliminated only for law enforcement officers. <laughs> Let's take it away from Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters, <laughs> Chuck uh, Schumer, uh, Jerry Nadler. Uh, we can start naming, going down the list <laughs> of who we start removing it from. Uh, yeah. but we also we have a call in on the uh, switchboard. Would you like to take a call? Uh, sure. Okay. All right, you're unmuted now, Skype caller. You're on the air live with Southern Sense. Our guest is Zach Smith with the Heritage Foundation. Who am I speaking to? Uh, you're speaking to Sarge. I'm sorry, Hanny. I just can't take it no more. <laughs> Go ahead, Sarge. Sarge is retired law enforcement officer, also retired military. Go ahead, Sarge. With yeah. that. Yes, Mr. Smith, I'm glad you're a guest here today because I've been reading uh, what I can find about this uh, Justice and what, Policing Act. But I forget the exact title, but right. still. My my question here is, and, and I know no one ever, when they think they got some kind of brilliant idea, some smarty-pants idea, no one ever asks what is the constitutional authority for what they're doing. But I would like to know how they intend to implement things like telling a state they cannot use a chokehold. Now, I, I know many states ban chokeholds. That's within their purview constitutionally. But i like to know where the federal government gets off telling a state what techniques law enforcement officers may use when, after all, they do have a firearm at their disposal and right. a, uh, a, a technique like a, a, a chokehold is not considered properly applied to be a lethal technique. Are they going to use the carrot and the stick of withholding federal funds, or are they just going to say right. we're just going to abrogate the power? What are they going to do? No, that's a great question, Sergeant. I really appreciate it. And, and you hit the nail on the head. They are using the carrot and the stick approach. As I'm sure you know, you know, state and local law enforcement departments receive a lot of funding through the Department of Justice, through federal grant programs. And so essentially what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do is it would make receipt of many of those funds uh, contingent on uh, state and local law enforcement agencies implementing certain policies and procedures. And if you want more information on exactly what the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act does, you know, please uh, look me up. I have a piece up at the Daily Signal uh, where I go through, discuss the act, and discuss what, what I think are many of the problems uh, with it. All right, I, I get the uh, – they've been using – they've been dangling the uh, um, withholding of federal funds over states for decades now. But is there also uh, just an outright seizure of power 
under a federal authority that uh, belongs uh, as a Tenth Amendment issue anywhere in this act, or is it all just federal funding? It's by and large federal funding. You know, there's certainly – it's been drafted in a way to avoid those constitutional issues that you talk about. And so Congress is basically requiring federal law enforcement officers. Uh, There's, you know, prohibiting many of these practices, requiring certain training and procedures uh, for federal officers. And then they're trying to implement the same policies through these grant funds uh, for state and local officers as well. Um, You know, at some point that the pressure that Congress is trying to exert could be unduly coercive under Supreme Court case law, but that would really be a fact-intensive inquiry. And I suspect uh, that the drafters of this bill have tried to do it in such a way uh, to avoid those constitutional questions. Still bad policy, uh, might be unconstitutional, but we would need, uh, you know, I think we would need more information before we could, could make that determination. I see. Thanks a lot for the information, but it still doesn't look good no matter how this thing is worded or, or implemented. Uh, well, Sarge, all right, Sarge, we're down to our last few minutes, so I want to thank you for the call. I'll talk to you later, okay? Okay. Thanks a lot, Annie. Take care. All right. Um, Zach, you mentioned also earlier H.R. 1, and back on March 10th, uh, Massimo Hack in the Epic Times wrote a great, great article that broke it down to, I believe he picked out 40 things or, or more that's wrong with H.R. 1. We could do a full three hours just on H.R. 1. It is so wrong, Absolutely. Bill, to, to change our election law. Well, I know you said we just had, had another minute or so left, Annie, so I'll, I'll be brief. But essentially, H.R. 1 is really, you know, I keep saying that there are these radical bills coming out right now, uh, but it really is a radical bill, and it would fundamentally uh, shift the power to run local elections from both state and local governments where it currently resides to the federal government. And among other very problematic policies, not only would it not encourage states to implement uh, basic electoral safeguards, it would actively prohibit them from doing that, prohibit them from requiring things like photo ID, uh, prohibit them from prohibiting same-day registration, prohibit them from using certain databases to, to check for you know, illegally registered voters. And so it's, just, it's a bad bill all around. And once again, you know, I think we all need to be aware of what it does and oppose it. And it, it, it's, it's a headache on steroids is what it is. And uh, I know our state had a fairly good election because we chose not to use Dominion machines. Uh, they had a two-part verification that could be done immediately. And they, they held it pretty tight. And I'm proud of what our state is. But now they've looked at what problems they had, though they were few, and now they're tightening the law even more. And uh, we do require voter ID. Uh, so, you know, states that are red are doing what is necessary. But then we've got the Democrats in charge of the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and it don't look too good for us at this point. Well, you know, we certainly hear a lot about power grabs uh, these days, you know, with H.R. 1, with H.R. 51, D.C. statehood. And if these measures are passed, you know, it certainly would fundamentally uh, transform the balance of power uh, within our government, fundamentally transform the structure 
of our, our system of government. And so, uh, you know, again, they're, they're dangerous bills, and, and we should oppose them. Absolutely. And matter of fact, in H.R. 1, it makes it hard to constitutionally challenge it because it restricts how and when and who can file any lawsuit. That's the most dangerous part yeah, of the bill. Well, it is. It would require all lawsuits to be brought in the, the District of Columbia, which obviously is an attempt to, to forum shop ahead of time, basically, uh, to avoid drawing what you know, I imagine Democratic members of Congress perceive could be an unfavorable judge somewhere else in the country. Uh, so, yeah, so that's just uh, – like you said, Anne, the, the bill is a behemoth. Uh, it's almost 800 pages, and it's, you know, how much time do you have? Because that's how much time we could spend, uh, you know, talking about all of the problematic provisions within it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they're, what they're doing is they're breaking up our Constitution, and if you don't have people that are going to stand up to that, then we will no longer have a nation. And Heritage is out there doing a hard fight, and God bless you guys for doing that. And tell Tom, thank you for sending me really wonderful people like you every week. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, if your listeners want more information about what's happening, please feel free to go to heritage.org, uh, check out you know, things I've written, things my colleagues have written. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at TZ Smith. That's at TZ Smith. And I try to post uh, you know, what's happening there as well. Well, Zach, thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks so much for having me on, Annie. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Check out ZachSmithHeritage.org, also up on the Daily Signal, too. Um, We're down to our last few minutes, and all I can tell you is Larry Clayman is going to be joining us again next week uh, on our show. Uh, Curtis, I hope that you would be able to be with me, uh, and uh, I'll be talking with you soon. I should be able to. Okay, great. Well, then we're going to end our show with a song by Jeremy Dodge called Stand Up, because I think this is the time our nation needs to unite and stand up against what the left is doing and trying to destroy us. So sit back, and I will see you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. In this present crisis, crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem.
rights of unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so fragile, so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. Ask what you can do for your country. 